3: With your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is
1: Heard Tell.
4: Ah, welcome back to Heard Tell. She hadn't been here for a while, she's been very, very busy. But we're glad we got her down to start the new year off here on Herd Tell. Alice Watson-Brown, one of our favorites, Young Voices contributor, University of Bristol graduate. How are you, my friend?
0: I am very well, Andrew. I'm so happy to be back on the show. Uh, it has been too long, and I'm excited just for a, a good, light conversation about you know what's most important and going on in the world.
4: Yeah, because there's nothing major going on there. Or no, or it's England. kind of boring. <laughs> Hardly. I actually want to start right there because... We talk to our U.K. friends all the time. It's been a tumultuous year in the U.K. Politics, different prime ministers, the cost of living crisis that doesn't look like it's it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. I think that's a fair way to put it. You're going to have some sometime in the next year, year and a half. You're going to have another election. So who knows how that goes. But here's how I want to ask this, because there's no way. Let's even back up a couple of years to the Brexit stuff. Your generational cohort, that that 20 to 30 year old group, the the part that just went through college, they graduated school about the time Brexit happened. Now they're coming out of college in the middle of this cost of living crisis. There's no way that's having not having a cultural and political shift on your generation, is there?
0: Absolutely not. As a young person. So I I'm 22. Uh, I graduated a few months ago. Um, So I was 16 when Brexit happened and then that was sort of my formative political experience I guess and um I didn't really I kind of just remember 2010 with the coalition and how that was shock horror and then it was just sort of when I came to my political maturity it just seemed to be you know a historical event after historical event um and now having gone through Brexit and Covid Uh, and the impact that COVID especially has had on the economy, um, I would say that that the economy is our biggest concern with young people. Um, And culturally, that means none of us are moving out. None of us can afford to really buy a house in the short term, Um, even though interest rates are quite stable. um, The prices, they're just too high. Um, So it's not fun at the moment, unless you're a very lucky person and you do manage to fall onto that dream grad job um, and get your sort of 60K a year, you're balling, you're doing great. Um, but I guess, and we look back, I look back on my education uh, as sort of the class of COVID. Um, I wasn't sort of in the midst of it, but I lost 18 months of of university. And I think, what was it all for? I went through schooling. I, I abided to the standardized testing Um, in a very competitive atmosphere. I was lucky enough to, I went to one of the top schools in the country, a boarding school, and then a pretty, you know, respectable university. I was a very, I had a very lucky educational upbringing. And where am I at the moment? Um, Without sounding too existential, I have no prospect of moving out. Um, I'm struggling to get a job. My elder siblings haven't yet moved out. Um, And pretty much everyone I know is in the same situation. And the government is not doing anything to help us apart from just you know their main focus is the nhs they can't pin their workers down they can't bring rail strikes they yeah we're just being thrusted by all these things that means we are being swept under the net aside from the fact that we're expected to be caught up in these culture wars and be on either side of something the whole time one side of an argument we're either woke or anti-woke left or right um pro-trans, anti-trans, all of that. It's sort of, I don't want to complain too much, but it is kind of exhausting. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I think at the moment, my main worry, and you know, the conversations you have with your friends when you go to the pub uh, after a day, day of work or not work or whatever, that's all what you talk about is how poor you are and how much you want to move out. And as much as we love our parents, we're old. We're too, we're too old to be living with them. Um, and it doesn't feel like there's any going to be any future respite for that apart from just keeping on going yeah
4: alice watson brown joining us that's the part i'm driving at because i can go back i'm a little bit older than you not much (laughs) um i can go back we can look at like you know the recession of the 2008 2009s we can go (laughs) back to the late 90s there's political change when there's economic turmoil especially to young folks because it hits them differently i noticed in my own children my younger children that were in high school primary school for y'all you know, those later grades, it really changed how they saw education. They didn't see school as something to go and do anymore. They really saw it as a government institution because it got shut down took away from them for 15 months, or at least my kids did. It completely changed how they saw education. They see school as a government entity now. That's going to change how they see the rest of their lives. So for your cohort, COVID is unique because it's not just you. It's so many people that's going to change how you see government. It's going to change how you see politics. It sees how you change, how you see economics. The folks that are arguing the political stuff in the UK, I really wonder how much it's hitting the next generation. Cause in 10 years, when y'all are the dominant force, you're going to cross a lot of those old traditional lines. The old playbook isn't really going to fit you all that well, is it?
0: No, I, I agree. And I think it, it's good to hear that, you know, from your own children, that they saw it as a government institution it it was as much of a chore as paying taxes if that makes sense and I can't remember who wrote it I think it was Joseph Piper he said that in you know not verbatim but education and leisure are are one I think the origin of the word school you know there there was creativity and fun in that original meaning of the word and there isn't anymore it's and there wasn't it was just kind of like oh yeah you you know you're allowed to be here now so you better do really well and we're gonna examine you in the exact same way before you know you had your classrooms taken away from you and you had your in-person time taken away from you and you can't complain what are you on about um and you're still going to be expected to adhere to the same standards as always people before you um and that is just quite hard to come to grips with because you always have a certain sense of trust to those people who mentor you academically and those who teach you i always did um and that was sort of taken away. I didn't end up really respecting the people, the institutions all that much, which is bad. I don't want to feel like that, but it's true. Um,
4: yeah. That quote makes me think of the Robin Williams quote where he's explained politics. He said poly from the Latin word for many and ticks, meaning blood sucking parasite. <laughs> um but you know, when you're coming out of you know the education, whether it's there or America, one thing you know, education up through college, it's a system, it's a conveyor belt. You're expected, okay, go through all these steps. You mentioned it earlier, like, look, we did all the. I heard this from my own child. You, I did everything right. I did all the steps they told me to do. They didn't hold up their end. Mm. Like you, that really is like a primal thing that changes. That's also a dangerous thing because now you're you're not talking about a policy change. You're talking about people that have built-in resentment now and I don't think you're just going to be able to policy change that away
0: no it's it's creating a general consensus of revolutionary politics I suppose rather than reactionary and that about what can we conserve that was good for us for our children than us just being like we need to tip this over and just start again because it's just useless um and whilst I do kind of think that in the UK especially our way of examining people and this was before COVID to be fair uh, our, our examination systems I think was flawed um, hugely um, but these people even when they did everything right as you say they followed their steps. and some of them poor people weren't even allowed to take the exams that they were promised to show what people what they could do they just said oh no we, like people are too ill you can't show up to take your test which will actually define where you go to college where you go for the rest of your life what you can study um, and that that's awful that is one entire trench of influence of your life just taken away from you and that is completely out of your control and that's not fair and especially was the reason why I wanted to bring up the um, essay bot the sort of AI Um, you know it's that if this whole thing comes in the context that literacy rates in the UK and the US are shocking at the moment I think it's something like uh, in the UK I think three quarters of white boys fail to meet the literary standards in the UK. And I think something in the US, it's like uh, around 54% of adults fall below sixth grade literacy rates, which is A, costly to the economy, and B, what are we doing to our children? Why are we not worrying about this and instead letting them watch porn the entire time um, and making them think that that's real? Why are we not encouraging them to write stories to play with Lego, to build things, to and why are we bothered about how they identify about their outward expression rather than their inward monologue with themselves and how they how they teach themselves how to make mistakes gracefully, or however Jordan Peterson puts it. But it's to me so wrong. And now there's this whole thing where you don't even need to work to write your essays. It's this um new story I think that came out. It's this bot called Chat GPT. Um, and it can write pretty coherent mid-grade essays for you, um, for free. You don't even need to pay for it. And I think the Daily Telegraph actually, they paid a teacher to mark an essay written by this bot. And they said, you know, it wasn't sophisticated, but it was very coherent. And uh, this tech is only going to get more advanced. And uh, whilst I'm not against, you know, ed tech, it's a huge market in the UK, as I'm sure it is in the US, and how it helps, you know, people all across the world get a better education with more resources. Um, This is, why aren't people concerned about this? Alongside all these other trends, and I think it has been lost, it has been suffocated uh, alongside all the other parts of the culture war, but this is gonna be our greatest casualty and we're not gonna notice it for a long time, but when we do, we'll have no one but ourselves to blame.
4: Yeah, Alice Watson-Brown joining us. It links to that literacy thing you just said, because we've got the data on the COVID stuff in the U.S. I don't know about the U.K. numbers. In the U.S., the thing that got hurt the most was math and reading. Mm -hmm. Some of these kids are two years behind on reading now, and we have further data. Uh, We covered it on the show a couple weeks ago. Early literacy programs are the one thing that, yeah, they're expensive. Yes, we sink a lot of money into them, but it's also one of the few things that we actually got data that it works really well. Early Mm -hmm. literacy, that's one of the things that carries through. The problem with this is in the U.S. education system is we've lost literacy, not because we don't teach reading, but the entire of the education system is built towards standardized testing. We're teaching kids how to take a test instead of teaching kids how to learn, and it kills their literacy. So the reason that literacy piece and that bot piece you're just talking about, where the look the bot, that technology has a lot of good to it. People with mm. disabilities, people working in second and third languages, people. Um, trying to get, you know, you think of people that are nonverbal that could maybe yeah. use that and open their world up. That has a lot of good things. But when you start tempting something like that to people who have not been correctly educated and they know they've got to pass these ed- essays and these tests, that's a bad combination. And it's just rife for abuse and, and, it, and it's just going to further hurt the education system.
0: It's going to hurt the education system and the pupils who they claim to serve. Um, and what do we have to do with that? These people are going to hopefully be leading this country, but our countries, the world. Um, and, you know, people, do you really want a kid who said, oh yeah, I didn't actually write any of my essays. When it comes to these, the, the learning how to write and the learning how to read, this should be a common currency across the world and we're losing that. That was the main thing, how we measured you know, women's rights and women's education was how many people can read and how many people can write and how many people can do maths. Where is that? Where's that gone? But yeah, and and going back to the sort of post-COVID factor about literacy rates being behind, there are pockets of students in the UK who just haven't returned to school. They don't, they're they're missing. Um, I don't have the exact figures. I don't want to chuck one out of thin air, but it's it's concerning. Um, And that has cropped up in mainly kind of right-leaning media outlets um, over the last few months. But I don't know if it's the same in the US. But this is worrying. And these children are from vulnerable households, from abusive parents, um, you know, low income mainly. Uh, In the UK, it's mainly concentrated in the Northern regions. Um, And some left-wing papers have blamed that on Brexit, which I find nonsensical. I couldn't really see a coherent link between their arguments. Um, But it's no coincidence that if you don't tell kids to come to school, they won't do it. Made to just write essays like a machine and not actually getting any feedback.
4: That's universal. Kids don't want to go to school unless you make them. Alice Watson Brown joining us. It's the same here. Look, the stats were bad. When you start talking about disparaging people groups, minorities, uh, lower income, lower income, you go, the stats get worse. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just inarguably. Those are the people that got left behind because the people with means found way, you know, they could get tutors. They could link up. I, I know in my home state of West Virginia, they had to put Wi-Fi rigs and buses and run them up and down the hollers and park them at, a walmart and then everybody would go to the walmart to the bus to get on wi-fi because there's not enough broadband you know you start talking about issues like that we talk about education especially in america i don't know how it is in england basically like if we just write enough money and we make the system big enough it's going to fix itself and we know that's not the truth because of the things you're just saying and i'm coming when i worked in the corporate world it was starting to get like this and now it's really getting like this we have all these college degreed people, but they're having trouble getting jobs because everybody's got a college degree now that are the same and they don't have a real skill set that sets them apart anymore. And I, I worry that what's just happened in the UK, you're going to start having that same problem there with the way the testing and the, the way y'all do the test outs or whatever you call them. I forget the term. The way y'all do that now, when you do that COVID scrunch of putting everybody together you're going to have the same problem. All those people are in the same bucket fighting for a, a lesser and lesser jobs that are out there. This is a real problem and it's a call to reevaluate how we're doing education, but we're not looking at it that way. We're just looking at it as a political problem.
0: I agree. And it shouldn't be politicized. And I think when you were saying, um, I, mentioning hard, like skills, like hard skills, I also, I don't think that we're being taught hard skills in school. We're not being taught. I think what's valuable now is being taught how to set up a drop shipping business so you can make money alongside you know uni or so you can fund your studies or you can fund a you know a three-week course in how to code python that's going to make you instantly more employable um how can i fund you know my own shop on shopify so i can at least learn how to sell i can learn how to talk to people and i can learn how to sell and i can learn how to negotiate um and i can learn how to walk back with more money in my pocket though those are the kind of things that i think some people are encouraging um you know that like self reliance and entrepreneurship i think that's really important but the fact that it is our only option now really to make ourselves feel fulfilled is sad um yeah i think there are now a lot of courses online that are teaching you how to you know how you can become a dropshipping master or a forex trader in 2 weeks and things like that there are more and more scams online of course you know these sort of get rich quick at home um but a lot of people are doing that a lot of my friends you know, are, are nomads now. Um, and they're enjoying it, don't get me wrong. But these are people who, from the schools they went to and the grades they got, you would expect would be flying high without any effort.
4: Yeah. Alice Watson-Brown joining us. That's something I wonder about, too, is you just mentioned it. Normally, you know, the folks that go to the better schools and do the certain career paths, they're expected to go into high finance, big business, Mm -hmm. politics, civil service, whatever. Is there going to be a brain drain in the UK from this? Because I think in the COVID area in America, with the way the government's going and some of those things, I think we're seeing a bit of a brain drain in government and politics because a lot of the quote-unquote good people don't want to fool with the mess and that's always kind of been a joke but I think we got some data to back it up now is that a fear in the UK with all the chaos and now like you just said they're having these nomad things they may go find something that they really like to do that is not that traditional career path that's going to be a brain drain on not only government and civil service over there but the country as a whole
0: I agree I think um I think you sort of touched on the phrase, it's like the best people don't go into politics. I don't know who said that, but it's something that's, you know, I, I say to a lot of people, um, I, I, There was there is no viable alternative, really. There's no viable political future for the UK, uh, even when, you know, Boris Johnson was going out of office. We were like, oh, let's just come along. But there was no kind of one person we were like, you know, we're, we're it's it's three nil down and we've got two minutes to go. We're going to get him in or her. in. there was no one person who we would who he, he was the forerunner of this um and a lot of people say to me like oh you why why not why don't you go into politics like the, obviously you, you'd love to go and i was like i i'm 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 you know i'm just as bad as a lot of other people who just say i don't want to touch that i don't want to do it because a you don't i don't know how much change you would make and b i can't be bothered for the optics the the hate that's going to come just for trying um the the sort of the echo chamber that you have to engage with now of social media if you want to put your name out there and that I guess that comes with the job but I don't know it's um I hope it's not right but when you were talking about the civil service in the UK interestingly um because we've now realized that we have such a bloated bureaucracy uh we're just creating jobs and throwing money at it like you said about the U.S. education system hoping that they would solve things. Um, People have now caught on that that isn't the way and they're slashing positions in the civil service at the moment. Um, But that's not the way with other state institutions like the NHS. Interestingly, a lot of my friends who have landed graduate jobs are in the health service management schemes, not in the civil service, not in GCHQ um, or any other kind of like traditional sort of high-flying occupation.
4: Alice Watson-Brown joining us. It's a little different in the UK than here but there there's a common theme I'm hearing and I see it in your look I watch PMQs just about every Wednesday'm I'm, I'm pretty up on the UK politics but I see a common theme there that's here there just seems to be a lot of frustration without any outlet for it and I don't want to get you know doom saying about it but the U.K. has got some real issues, and we've got some real issues here. We've got a couple of years, the next two years, and then this this next election cycle in the U.S. This is going to be very contentious because we've got a divided Congress. We've got a presidential election coming. This is going to be some ugly stuff for a while. The U.K. looks like they're – usually you have these pretty stable premierships where you get three, four, five, six-year runs. That's not going to happen. It doesn't look like Sunak's going to get too far into next year without having to have some kind of election. That will be four in about 18 months, give or take. Let's just ballpark it. That's not normal instability for the UK. How does that land with the people, though? They've got—I know—at the end of the Brexit, it was just okay. It's over. We almost don't even care which way. Just make mm-hmm. it go away, right? Is it getting to be that way with Parliament and the premiership right now? Because it seems like it feels like from the outside, folks are just kind of sick of this rut that the Parliament and the Prime Minister and the revolving door are in right now.
0: I think so. It, it, it's it's a it's a rut of epic proportions. Um, I would say. Uh, I think. The trail of leadership since Boris Johnson, so you had Liz Truss, who tried to be radical, but the one rule about being radical is that you have to be reassuring in order to succeed. And she wasn't reassuring. Uh, It was a bulldozing, blundering, you know, trying to be Margaret Thatcher kind of performance caricature, which failed, obviously. And then you have Rishi Sunak. He's quieter, more reassuring, but fluffy, no personality, sort of disliked by a lot of the conservative grassroots because of his role in COVID and lockdown. Um, In essence, the Conservative Party now has fallen into the trap of its Labour counterpart and that it doesn't know what it stands for. I spoke about the Labour problem, I think in the last podcast, but um, I think their their main identity crisis now is over taxation. Are you a party of high taxation or low taxation? It's not a difficult question to answer and because they created the mess in which they had to raise taxes they are now at an utter loss at which string to grasp to pull themselves forwards it, it it's fascinating to watch albeit depressing um it's fascinating and uh, there's now sort of on the edge or oh, is there's the tension of is Nigel Farage going to return to politics is he going to make this grand re-entry for, you know leave the gb news studio and come in and save everyone um a lot of tory mps are scared they'll lose their seats if he does um but i i have no faith in that really ensuing anything different either it'll just be new crisis different day
4: yeah i'm i don't know that gasoline on the fire is what's called for here i don't know if that's a british <laughs> saying or not but it certainly is where i am that will be one hot mess but unfortunately here's the problem And and again, we're not even talking specific politics here. We're just talking big picture here. People get sick of it. People have bandwidth. People can only take so much, even with parties they agree with and ideologies they agree with. That's when you really have trouble, though, is when people start tuning out and they just start going, just make it stop and go away. That's when the really bad, ugly stuff happens. And that's why we need to be vigilant, both in the UK with whatever happens in your next election and us with what's going to be happening here. That's when you really got to be vigilant, because when people are going, no, 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 just make it stop. That's when the untoward actors start really working their stuff and be like, oh, I'll make it all better. Listen to me. This is the time we got to really hold on to our principles and pay attention to what's going on even more. So as hard as it is.
0: I agree. That's the time when accountability goes out the window and populism becomes your best friend. Uh, It's, as you say, pouring fuel on fire. Um, I have no idea what really will ensue in the next general election in the UK. Uh, I imagine the conservatives will lose their majority. Um, Whether that means they are not going to be the largest party is a different question. Uh, I have a feeling they will remain the largest party because Labour have not yet made a stand that has made them attractive to Conservative voters who can cross enemy lines, in my opinion. Um, But I don't know, the problem is also is that I think in the, I was reading US news today as well, that as well, the politicians seem to be fighting between themselves more than their, more than the public. And that seems to me wrong. Uh, it, it should be the other way around. Um, I think it wasn't it so the Republicans are taking back the House and now they want to launch an inquiry on Joe Biden and COVID uh, about Hunter Biden's laptop. And you think, obviously, these are, you know, these could be pretty big wedge issues. But it seems to me that rather than as soon as the other side gets in, rather than building and carving their own future for that, you know, for their beliefs, they're just trying to make it look like the guy before them did a worse job than they're going to do. What kind of a system is that? It's, it's not appealing. It's not attractive. And it's discouraging any you know attractive talent from joining you. Um, and it's, you know, it, it's not durable.
4: No, and they better, Alice Watson Brown join us, they better do some, I've been writing about this, and even really hardcore folks on the right that really understand it are like, no, you better do some governing, because remember, our Congress, you're up every two years, we could have this really absurd thing where we flip the Senate and the Congress both right Mm. back again in two years, be interesting to watch, Alice Watson Brown, I love talking these bigger picture cultural stuff, because it's important, because you know this is the stuff that you know like we're talking about the the generational cohorts and this is stuff in 10 years people are going to be like oh how did this get this way and we can go back and go like look we were already talking about it so it's good to talk to you about these things uh we always enjoy having you back on the program we will have you back on the program in 2023 lord willing and the creek don't rise that's another american <laughs> saying we don't know if y'all need to adopt that one too
1: probably um,
4: <laughs> Uh, let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you. Um, you can even pitch your Spotify account if you want to. I know you're all into the fashion stuff. But let folks know where they can keep up with you until we get you back on Tell again.
0: Yeah, so my Twitter handle is just at Alice Watson Brown. Uh, no, A-L-Y-S Watson Brown. Uh, I will be posting more there occasionally now. I have been radio silent probably because I'm losing faith, which is bad. So we're going to keep our principles and we're going to keep investing. <laughs> But thank yep. you so much for having me on. It's been such a pleasure and I really hope to see you soon.
4: I do too. That's why we do Twitter Supper Club, to put the food on there. Let's yeah. get our faith and humanity back in there. Let's Alice do. Watson-Brown, you're great, my friend. Talk to you soon. Thank you for the time.
0: Thank you. And you too. And Happy New Year.
4: Happy New Year to you. Ah, Welcome back to her Okay, he's a good friend of the program. We're glad to have him back. His friends call him Gary, but on his driver's license it says Gary and Frankel because it's all fancified like that. How are you, sir? Great to have you back on the program.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm doing well. How about yourself?
4: No, oh, we're living the dream, man. This is romping in the high cotton here. Um, you're writing in Ordinary-Times.com a publication of note. that, uh, here's what you did. And I like when you do this, we took an issue that's really loud, turned down the noise. You went to a historical example to try to deal with what we saw with the speaker of the house fight. And now the rules committee package that's gone through and all the various committee assignments. We're watching what's going on in Congress. Well, this is the 118th Congress. We've done this 118 times. Well, right around that ninth or 10th time, you went back to that as an example then maybe some of the folks in Congress now could maybe learn some. And it's a name that people kind of don't think about because his dad was more famous than he was.
1: Yeah, absolutely. When you look at the career of John Quincy Adams, he's most famous for having a presidency that was meh at best. But what you really have is decades of dedicated public service by somebody who truly cared about his country, but maybe just wasn't particularly suited to an executive role. But when you look at his service within the cabinet as secretary of state, when you look at his time about, as a diplomat traveling around Europe, and most importantly, I think, when you look at his almost two decades uh, in the House of Representatives and his older age, you find quite a bit to glean, because even with, you know, the different society, the different moral values, uh, different policy issues, people are still people. Conservatives are still conservatives. I think there's a lot that you can learn from.
4: Gary and Frankel joining us. Okay, let's start right there, though, because the terms have changed. What a conservative now and what one back then was, they didn't really use that term. But they had things like federalist, um, they had things like people that were in the Constitution. They had people that were following Jefferson. They had people that followed Adams. They had people that followed different founding fathers. They had their own cults of personality, just like we do now with our political figures. There was a lot going on there. John Quincy Adams, of course, has got the added problem of he's just he's not only in got one of those names, you're John Adams' son. That's got a little bit of weight to it, I would imagine.
1: Yeah, absolutely. He struggled with that throughout his life. Um, Obviously, you can't diagnose someone who's been dead for almost 200 years, uh, but a lot of scholars seem to think from his diary entries, from some of his letters, that he may have struggled with chronic depression. And for somebody who felt that they had the weight of the world on their shoulders, that must have been really hard to deal with. But um, much like his father, in fact, Quincy looked at all of the cults of personality that were surrounding him. He looked at the party man sort of environment and said, no, I'm going to go my own way and do what I think is right.
4: Yeah. Gary and Frankel before we lionize him too much, because I do think there's something to really take from his congressional career. And we'll lay that out in just a second. This was a different era, you know, we're, especially his congressional career where you're talking about, you know, the, the turn of the century, the 1800s, his presidency into the 1820s and 1830s. We're starting to get into the national issues that lead to the Civil War. We're talking about things like slavery, like the North is growing faster than the South, which is more agriculture and the North is becoming industrial. A lot of the things that shaped our country for the next hundred years through the Civil War, through the Reconstruction, he lived to see that stuff. But that also meant he had some flaws, not just as a man of his time, but just, you know, he was a human being. He had problems. So before we lionize him, there's some issues here as well we got to address.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um, one of the commenters on the uh, Ordinary Times article did a really good job of pointing this out. Um, He, for most of his life, and I focused much of my article talking about the slavery issue, for most of his life, Quincy made it clear that he was an abolitionist to a certain extent. But he was worried about his friendships. He was worried about his relationships. He was worried um, about what the political consequences of standing too harshly against slavery would be, from both a personal and a broader standpoint. So this was not a stand that he always took. It was a decision that he cons- that he consciously made later. But one thing I think is important is that when people do make mistakes, when people do become Victims of their time and circumstance, or perhaps even their personal failings, and then turn around later in life and become what they should have been all along. There's something worth studying there. And if you dismiss somebody's actions entirely based on what they did in their youth or what the values present in that society were in particular, then there's very little that you can learn from history in general other than just patting yourself on the back and saying how much better you are.
4: Yeah, Gary and Frankel. One thing you pointed out in the piece here, this is kind of unique in American history. He went to Congress as his retirement job. He actually called it his retirement job in his own personal writings. This is after he's been president. Look, he could have just sat there, punched the clock, not done a whole lot, got reelected probably for life and so on and so forth. The lesson you're drawing here, though, is that's not what he did, though.
1: Exactly, um, and he made a point of really leading the fight against slavery for the first time is, for, for the first time in his life, um, through his presidency. And that, keep in mind, that was decades of public service at that point. He started becoming a public servant when I think he was thirteen. Um, he had mostly been in the background of that debate whenever it did come up. He made it clear in his personal communications and his private writings, that he was against slavery and that he abhorred the practice. But he was not on the front lines leading the fight against it for political or social, perhaps economic reasons. It would have caused some strife with his family um, because his wife and her family had a background in slaveholding. But he did not choose to go quietly into his retirement. That was, if anything, when he was most active in a broader sense because he felt empowered to finally fight for causes that he believed in.
4: Yeah, Gary and Frankel. It's interesting because when you started drawing the comparison to the, the day, um, we talk about the grifter class. You know, I've been joking about um, the hardcore right that made so much noise and speak. I've been calling them the raucous caucus just because I like the alliteration of it. But it's fun, you know. They 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 just they're chaos makers. They're crazy yes. makers. I get pushback sometime on social media about using the term grifter for certain people. I use it for people that I think deserve it, who are clearly you know, using a business model. Here's the thing. Grifters aren't new. And his 17 years in Congress, along with abolition and some of the other stuff, John Quincy Adams spent a lot of time on what we would now call grifters of his day, didn't he?
1: he did because he needed their votes in order to get what he wanted passed which was a, a repeal of the gag rule which prevented any discussion uh of slavery he needed them on his side so and this is something that he really struggled with in a lot of his a lot of his private writings because he had a what he considered to be a moral virtuous purpose in mind but he knew that he would have to play politics and convince people who were only out to increase their own powers, just narrow self-interest. He had to get them on his side somehow. And that, may, that meant making promises that he may or may not have been able to keep. That meant um, having to play ball on some other issues that maybe he wasn't quite comfortable with. Um, the legislature in general is ugly. And in order to get stuff done, you have to roll with the punches sometimes. And it it hurt him some and may have caused a flare of his depression at some point.
4: Yeah. And you touched on it in a piece in this way is that, look, this it take the politics out for a second. This is basic human stuff right here. This is deep philosophy. Kind of how do you live your life stuff? He talked about it. He's talking about, look, I understand the human heart, including my own, is deceitful and wicked. But we have this virtuous goal, but we have to go through politics to achieve those goals. This is a universal principle that whether it's, you know, 1823 or 2023, this is the same stuff we're still struggling with.
1: Absolutely. And one thing that I think is important at looking at these types of universal principles, especially as they apply to people in the past who considered themselves to live by those principles is that most, if not everybody is going to fail at at least some point. Maybe there's no chance for us to ever be perfect at it at all. Um, There's been considerable debate about that concept in philosophy for thousands of years, but whether or not it's possible to be perfect in a virtuous sense, there's some pretty strong agreement that it's worth pursuing. And even if you fail and you struggle as you're pursuing it, that doesn't make the pursuit any less worthwhile. So I think it's equally worthwhile to look at people who made an honest effort in that pursuit, even if they didn't live up to even their own expectations, much less so of modern society which has very different values in some instances.
6: join me as we journey together you can listen to church in maine podcasts at the website churchandmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app i look forward to seeing you
4: folks you've heard ethan brown on the hurt tell show a couple of different times but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom head over to his podcast the sweaty penguin Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about feel overwhelmed exhausted or excluded by today's climate change discourse this is the podcast for you find the sweaty penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com Gary and Frankel joining us. Let's go through the history of this a little bit, because I think there's another universal principle here. People know about, you know, Lincoln freed the slaves, Emancipation Proclamation, right? We know Reconstruction was a mess, uh, was not handled correctly. We'll be real kind and just leave it at that. And that led to this Jim Crow, which led to the Civil Rights Movement, which led us to where we are today. These things all happened in a sequence. The sequence before the Civil War that we don't talk about as much. And before you get to The Civil War and before you get to Dred Scott and before you get to even something like Amistad, which is known because of the movie and such before all of that, there was a fight over this gag rule. Why was that so important? Because it's hard for us to understand. The House of Representatives was not allowed to discuss slavery. That sounds amazing. But if you don't have that fight and John Quincy Adams and others don't have that fight, none of the rest of that that led up to emancipation happens. Walk us through that, because that's an important piece of history that I don't think we talk about enough.
1: Exactly. Um, Everybody knew from the very beginning of this country that slavery was going to be a controversial issue. Um, That's why they wrote into the Constitution that they would just leave it for 20 years and then push the problem over to 1808. And then after that, you have debates run up every five or 10 years. Sometimes the slavery issue would take a backseat to particular military or economic matters. But it was always there. It was always the elephant in the room. And nobody really liked talking about that because there was a broader interest in economic development or preserving the Union. Um, during the Jacksonian era, era, you have that massive fight over the bank, uh, which continued into the Early part of the Van Buren presidency, but it's in the Van Buren presidency that things really start coming to a head on the slavery issue, and the gag rule was instituted in in an attempt to sort of replicate what happened during the Declaration of Independence and the Constitutional Convention, and just push it another decade or so, make it somebody else's problem. Uh, we don't have to talk about this right now, but for those like John Quincy Adams who saw slavery as um correctly as this horrible moral wrong, just pushing it off to the side and making it somebody else's problem was just not acceptable anymore.
4: Yeah, there's another one of those universal principles is kicking the can down the road on an important issue always makes it worse. Yep. and Frankel joining us. Here's another piece of that history that people lose and especially the lost cause movement. And people this came in towards you know Quincy, let's talk the 1830 if you look at history through the 1830s once the gag order came down through the beginning of the Civil War in 1861 the slavery laws in the north got lax and lax and there was a lot of abolition and the movement and in the south they started getting worse they started taking away the legal right to emancipate slaves they took a, they had court fights in the Carolinas that the Quakers couldn't come in and free people legally that's part of this history too is like there was an after effect to this was like Although the people that want it fought harder and the people that wanted to keep slavery kept fighting too. This wasn't an inertia thing. This was an active fight.
1: Yeah, and it was a brutal fight at that. Um, You don't get something like bleeding Kansas, for for instance, between two groups that are having a mild disagreement with one another, even if it's on some kind of moral issue. You get bleeding Kansas from something that's deeply fractious for something that concerns some of our innermost moral values. And in the case of the South, an exploitative economic system that they desperately wanted to preserve because they incorrectly saw no other option. They were wrong. Adam Smith proved even before the United States was a thing that slavery made you poor. But the South saw another no, no other option. They had self-interest. They wanted to keep their property. They wanted to keep their de facto aristocracy. And when they saw the more North making a moral argument against that, that only hardened their resolve. And it was just this brutal, bloody history that, as much as we talk about it, as much as we recognize it, still gets somewhat lost about how bad it really was.
4: Yeah, Gary and Frankel. Okay, let's come back to the present tense because that's why you kind of went backwards in time. Talk about the Congress as we have it. Um, I think we're both realists. We understand this is going to be a contentious Congress. We have a split House and split Senate between two parties. We have a presidential election. I think there's going to be a lot of fighting, a lot of gridlock and a lot of things not getting done. So I don't think they're going to learn the lessons. But if they wanted to learn the lessons, what would the lessons be here?
1: The lessons would be that if even just a few people act purely on principle, that they to a certain extent are going to get something that they want or something that they think is right. Um, one example I used in the comments of Ordinary Times, um, look at Chiproy. Chiproy, people either love him or hate him. But regardless of what you think about Chip Roy, Chip Roy does what Chip Roy thinks is best because Chip Roy has certain moral values that he thinks that Congress and people in general should be pushing towards. And because he was so resilient in that, he got concessions from McCarthy that probably would not have been there otherwise that will alter the way that the house operates for the next two years. And I'm not saying that everybody should be Chip Roy or that Chip Roy was correct in this instance, but if you act in that sort of way and you think about higher principles as opposed to whatever will benefit me for the next five seconds as a representative, then you are more likely to accomplish what it really is that you want. And I think a lot of uh, what I like to call the grifter consortium Um, has forgotten about that because they're only thinking about the next 10 minutes. They're only thinking what will get them that Fox News head or that lucrative fundraising deal tomorrow. But they're not thinking about what's going to happen a year, two years, five years, 10 years down the line. And that harms not only the country, it obviously harms the country, but it it harms them, too. It ironically ends up being destructive for their self-interest.
4: Yeah, Gary and Frankel, we've been beating up on our GOP friends a little bit. Let's talk about our Democratic friends for a second. Look, they looked good by just sitting there and being quiet and letting all this chaos go on, right? So they they got an easy layup here. What lesson are they learning as they watch this contention? Because, look, they're going to have a good look at getting the house back, especially if this is chaotic for a couple of years. What lesson are they learning as they're sitting here do you think they should take away from all this?
1: The lesson that they're learning, and I think this is a lesson from um, Van Buren, who I've also written quite a bit about, Um, as opposed to John Quincy Adams. But I think that they're learning that party unity is important above all else, and that you can have your debates, you can have your internal squabbles, but they need to be uh, behind closed doors. And once you get to that public facing area, wherever it is, if it's on TV, if it's within the house, if it's on C-SPAN, whatever, that they have to represent a united cohesive front because otherwise they look just as bad as the Republicans do right now.
4: Yeah, and Nancy Pelosi did a really good job of that in her two terms. We'll see how Hakeem Jeffries does helming the ship over there. Gary and Frankel always love having historical perspective on modern events, giving us a little bit of, you know, not a guide, but some guardrails on how to approach this stuff going forward. Let folks know where they can follow you, keep up with you, what you got going on. You're another one of our great Young Voices contributors. You do a lot of writing on history and education and things like that. Let folks know how to keep up with you until we get you on her Telegate, my friend.
1: Absolutely. I'm most active on Twitter at F-R-A-N-K-E-L-G-A-R-I-O-N.
4: Uh, Gary and Frankel, his friends call him Gary. We just call him a good friend. Thanks, buddy. We'll talk again soon.
1: Thanks for having me, Andrew.
4: Yes, sir. Uh, Welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, we're excited to have her. She has become our Western correspondent because she's out there in the beautiful Front Range of Colorado, which I got to enjoy back in October. We'll talk about that in a minute. Chris Kiefer, she's a columnist at the Denver Post. She has a whole bunch of animals, including a cat in her lap if you're watching on the YouTube channel, and we're going to talk to her like we love to do. How are you, ma'am? Great to have you back on the program.
2: It is good to be back. Um, Yeah, it's it's rather cold here, um, but uh, we're having a great day.
4: Yeah, y'all went through the one of the viral videos of the bomb cyclone or whatever everybody went through over the holidays. There was the live shot with time lapse of Denver, where it went from nice to Antarctica in about 45 minutes for people that don't live in the mountains and at altitude like that. Just explain to them how fast the wet look. I was there last week of October and it was 75 every day talk to people about just how fast the weather changes on the front range up there. Cause it really is something you can sit there and watch the weather coming at you.
2: Yes. It is pretty crazy here because we are at a higher altitude. We get epic hail, unfortunately in the uh, spring, summer, and fall. I've got, uh, I've had golf ball size hail hit my house, uh, to say that if you're in the insurance industry, this might be a good place to relocate. Um, But yeah, it can change. from It can be 75 degrees in the winter with bright sunshine and then drop down into like the 30s. It's been a cold winter, which I think is nice. I like snow, but uh, not everybody does.
4: Yeah. All right. So as a columnist, you tackle the important issues of the day. Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Or in this case, as you're writing, which came first, the cost increase in poultry or the cost increase in the eggs?
2: Well, the problem here is that a lot of our poultry has died. So we've lost six million birds from avian flu. We've also lost a lot of wild birds, uh, great horned owls, also uh, red-tailed hawks, uh, very susceptible to avian flu. I have a flock of five hens. Luckily, they have not gotten avian flu, but it has been a big deal. In fact, in December, I think uh, well over a million birds slaughtered because of, of avian flu, and that has driven the price of eggs up it's not a colorado problem exclusively 47 states have had an issue with avian flu and it's driven the price of eggs pretty pretty high
4: yeah Krista key for joining us here's the problem with eggs is cost of living is going up for everybody of course we know about inflation poultry is one of those things that covers a couple of different things because they do produce eggs they're also you know they also produce feed for other animals They also produce meat chicken as we buy it, which is one of the most popular meats in America. It's also historically supposed to be the cheaper meat, you know, the little bit more affordable meat. So this crosses a couple different streams all at once, doesn't it?
2: So uh, I don't know that meat hens have been as affected. Uh, Meat birds basically have a lifespan of about six months. Uh, Once hatched, they sit around gaining, you know, uh, gaining mass basically for six months and then they're slaughtered. Laying hens usually are kept around for about two years. I keep mine for the natural lifespan, which is up to 10 years. But usually around two, they slaughter those birds and they become your Campbell's chicken noodle soup, just because layers are a little too, too tough for people to have on their kitchen table just as a roasted hen. But yes, it is, a, it is a big deal. Avian flu is a significant problem. It doesn't actually transfer to humans, but it kills an awful lot of birds.
4: Yeah. And then the thing that happens here is it gets into, th- you know, avian flu has been around for a long time. This is something that it almost seems cyclical at this point. Right. Every couple of years we have an mm-hmm. outbreak of this, but it goes right back into something we've talked about before. and We've talked with you about before. Here we go again with a conversation of how do we bounce an economic concern, which is, you know, food needs to be as cheap as possible for as many people as possible to afford it. With humanitarian concerns, how these birds are taken care of, even though they are for food production. That's a big deal because when you start talking about losing six million birds, the reason you lose so many in avian flu is because they're kept in tight quarters. They're all, but it's just like we went through with COVID, you know, infectious disease spreads in bunches. Well, poultry farms, to be cost effective, have to be bunches of birds. I've seen the mountain air farms we have near where I live before. There's no way really around that, but it brings us back to the old conversation again. How do we balance economic concerns and feeding everybody with also being humane to these animals?
2: And that definitely is a concern. Here in Colorado, two years ago, the legislature passed a a new law saying that all of the chickens have to have uh, about a square foot of space, which seems pretty minimal, if you ask me. In the the past number of decades, the kind of big factory farms have, Started pushing for tighter and tighter quarters. So you've got a whole bunch of hens in a cage, barely able to move, spend their lives standing on, on you know, metal metal bars while uh, eating food and, and creating eggs. And consumers are saying we don't we don't want that anymore. Yeah, we want economically sound uh, egg policies, but we do not necessarily want animals to be treated cruelly. So consumers are pushing towards more. Humane options, cage-free and free-range, not exactly the same thing, but at least get these birds out of these cages. Large entities, big restaurants like Burger King, Marriott and so forth are are also moving towards purchasing eggs from humane operations. And now legislators around the country, maybe less than a dozen have put forth rules that say, if you want to sell eggs in this state, your hens have to have at least a square foot of space. And then starting next year, at least have to be out of the cage. That doesn't mean they, you know, can't be packed into a big room, but at least they can move around a little bit.
4: Yeah. Krista Kay for joining us. I like when you wrote about this in your pieces, and we're going to link to her Substack where she reruns her columns as well. This is so much not a new problem that you quoted something from 1641, the Massachusetts body of liberties. That is not a, you know, I don't know what that sounds like, but the Massachusetts Body of Liberties was actually a political thing, policymaking arm, I guess you would call it in modern parlance. I'm not going to try to pronounce it because they wrote it in the old English kind of things. But 1641 to today, and here they are talking about the exact same issues.
2: Yeah, that was the first uh, kind of uh, humane treatment standards set up in this country during the colonial era. But even if we go back in time, if you look at the old Hebrew law for example there are some some uh, rules in there about how you treat your animals Um, you know even on the Sabbath if your oxen or your donkey falls into a hole you still can pull that animal out Um, there's an expectation that animals that are used as beasts of burden also animals that are used as food are treated humanely and I'm a big meat-eater I love uh, you know, I love a good steak. I love game. I'm always telling people that I'll trade my homemade jam for any game they can give me. But I, I don't want animals treated poorly simply so that I can eat their protein. I want animals to be treated well. And if we look at with cattle, cattle live pretty decent lives as they spend a good deal of their life out in the field. But pigs and chickens are treated really abysmally in a lot of cases. And we're, I'm, I'm hundred percent behind. These new rules to make sure that they've got at least some quality of life while they're alive.
4: Yeah, Krista Kaver. It's funny you mentioned cows in comparison. Um, Yellowstone's immensely popular, most popular TV show in America mm-hmm. right now. The opening scene of the first episode was the the bullet line on the first scene was Kevin Costner looking at the cow and going, "Amazing, what we do to keep you fed." Right? We understand <laughs> that you know livestock is money; it's a commodity, not just food. We talked before with you about pork. Um, Now we're talking about chickens. There does seem to be an overarching. We're joking about this 1641 law that's written about tyranny and tyranny spelled T-I-R-R-A-N-N-Y and cruelty is uh, with an I-E at the end. You know, there does seem to be a thread where people are like, okay, look, there's got to be a way to do both with modern technology You know, this is another one of those things social media changed is because we have pictures inside those facilities. Look, I've been on the kill floor at Smithfield Processing. It is not pretty. People don't want to see that, especially people that want to eat meat. We know what we can see it now. Where in the past. You couldn't see where your food came from. People want a balance. So where is the balance? Is it going to be a regulatory fix? Is it going to be a legislative fix? Or is it just going to be public pressure in the market saying that or is it a combination thereof?
2: I think it's a combination thereof. So a couple of years ago, I started buying cage-free eggs, but not that much more money. Um, I don't bother with the whole organic thing. And here's a kind of funny thing. People say, you'll, you look at these expensive eggs and it'll say vegetarian fed. Well, you know, hens are omnivores. If I throw meat into my, the pen where I keep my hens, they'll fight over it. They'll, they'll share the salad, but they'll fight over the meat. So, you know, if you see organic or, you know, vegetarian on that label—it doesn't really mean much, except those poor hens are deprived the pleasure of meat. But the cage-free option or even the free-range option, I think, is something that customers really need to look for. I also have my own hens, which lay about ten months out of the year, so I don't even buy eggs much of the time, and I give away a lot of eggs because they're good producers. So I—I I, I think that consumers can make good choices, but at some point, you will always have market pressures, consumers who don't care about humane standards and producers who also do not care about humane standards. And that's where you have to have the legislature stepping in.
4: Yeah. Chris K for joining us. You just mentioned it. So let's talk about it for folks that, you know, like I've, I've got a local pork guy that I go to, but I can only do that about four or five times a year. Cause he's a small family farm. He only goes, he can only do it when he goes to processing. And then he calls me like, Hey, I'm coming back from the processor. What do you want? I can't feed my family like that. And most other people can. And a lot of people don't even have that options. So when they just go to a grocery store, What are they looking for? Because the lay, you know, people label about everything. You know, my local grocery chain does have a local label for certain things, but some folks don't have that. What should they actually look at? Look, you're somebody that pays attention to this. You raise your own chickens, like you said. Give them a few things to look for beyond just the marketing labels to know that they can feel good about what they're getting.
2: I would look for cage free or free range so cage free means they're not in a cage but they are in a a big facility there's a lot of birds in one place it's not necessarily inhumane but cage free is that's what cage free is if you do free range those animals have a lot more space and i buy one or the other depending on the price and then when it comes to uh, meat hens um, those hens are also often treated really poorly and i'm kind of moving away as much as i love chicken i am Kind of moving away from both chicken and pork unless I can make sure that I'm getting those animals from a humane operation and I'm just simply eating a lot more beef uh, just because I know those animals are treated treated well.
4: Chris, the K for joining us. Okay, you're out in Colorado. So, one of the things is, is when you're from a particular area of the country and you're a media commentator, you get stuck talking about particular people from that area that you need to commentate on, right? Yes. Um, you're everybody's favorite GOP uh, Congress person, And of course, that changes based on who you talk to. You wrote about Lauren Boebert. Here's where I want to start with before we get to the speaker fight and her being front and center on that the last few days. When I was out in Colorado, into October, of course, they're almost time for the election. I wasn't in her district, but I asked some folks because I was just curious. Because I'm a national guy, all I know is what I read. You see the tra- so I just asked people in Colorado what they thought. I was really surprised because a lot of them was like, "Hey, we we think this is going to be a closer election than you think." People aren't really super happy with her. She had her re- district redrawn. People actually thought it might be even more favorable towards her, and she underperformed a lot. She barely survived that election. You're actually there. You cover You're writing about it. Again, we'll link to your sub stack on the piece that you wrote about her. You said this is a pretty clear message to her about what she should and shouldn't do if she wants to survive in 2024. We all saw the speaker fight. She was all over the national news. Was that a step towards or a step away from what you were saying she should have learned from the election in 2022?
2: I'm thinking maybe she didn't learn. So she, she won by about 500 votes. And this is after scandals came out about her opponents. So, and it's a it is a it's a plus eight district. It's a heavily Republican district, and a lot of folks were saying, I, "I'm tired of her style." In fact, Trump like religious uh, Trump like candidates did far worse than non-Trump like candidates in this state, even in very conservative districts. So, if you look at her district, the the statewide candidates who are not Trumpians, for the most part did better than her in her own district. People don't like the, you know, when you scream out during the state of the union, they they don't like that stuff. They don't like, you know, showy. I'm, I'm, you know, running around with a pistol on my hip and I'm saying stupid stuff. A a subs, you know, a a certain amount of people do like that because they think it's quote unquote fighting back. Um, I'm not sure. It seems more like you're punching the air, but I don't know that she learned the lesson. I also think it's just her. She is, uh, so I call her the plucky pugilist. She she likes to fight. She's not a serious person. Uh, and, is, and she loves the attention. She loves the camera. But you know that you've kind of crossed the line when Sean Hannity takes you to task for things you've said and done. Uh, perhaps you've crossed the line.
4: What is the electorate in Colorado? Because Colorado is a very complicated place right now politically. There's a lot across streams. We talked about it before. I find Colorado really fascinating because... You have a lot of progressivism, but you also have some real deep pockets. You have some national, really super conservative groups and religious groups that are headquartered there. You also have an openly gay governor. You have a lot of inclusion. You have a lot of tradition and history. There's a lot of cross streams when it comes to Colorado. We understand that a congressional district can be pretty insular. But when you see something like what happened in the speaker fight, if she winds up getting isolated where she's not really part of the water caucus and just doing the online stuff, is that something the electorate in Colorado is paying attention to? Do they put those two things together? It's like, look, you're on TV, but you're not really doing anything for us or the other way around. How does it land with the people there that you're around?
2: I honestly think that if she had a strong primary contender, she had a a really good person as a primary contender last time around. Don Coram, seasoned legislator, but you know a man in his 70s, man uh, already in office and, and working for the people. And I, I think you need somebody who's younger and dynamic to take her on at the primary level. And I think it could happen. So Colorado, like you said, is kind of a complicated place. I grew up here. It was much more of a purple state then where you could get a Republican governor. You very often had a Republican Secretary of State, Republican attorney general. The state got an influx of millions of people, many of whom were were Democrats, frankly, and now the numbers just don't look good. So Democrats outnumber Republicans in the state by by a pretty substantial margin, with the exception of a couple of areas that remain Republican strongholds. Colorado Springs, we're focused on the family, is headquartered. That is one of those areas. The eastern part of the state, held by Ken Buck, also conservative, a lot of uh, farms, small towns. And then the the mountains do have some uh, you know, ski areas, wealthy Democrat strongholds like Aspen, But then the rest of the mountains, including the largest mountain city there, which is Grand Junction, is a republic, is Republican. So it, you know you have strong candidates in those areas. you can have Republicans in office. The Weld county in the north should have gone Republican, but there was a libertarian spoiler that made a very liberal Democrat take that area, I think it's possible that in the future that could be picked up as well. But I, I, I do think that uh, Boebert is the weakest link. I also think she's an embarrassment to the party. Uh, things that she says are, are pretty cringe-worthy. Here's the irony though, is over the speaker fight, Marjorie Taylor Greene, a, a definitely more cringe-worthy candidate or uh, sitting office holder, actually went after Boebert and now they're no longer besties. And Boebert is complaining about Green and Green complaining about Bobert. So, you know, if you don't like to watch the Kardashians, you can always watch C SPAN.
4: That yeah, is this is true, Krista Kafer. Let's be adults here, though. Marjorie Taylor Greene buddied up to uh, Kevin McCarley because she wants her committee assignments back because, remember, she was stripped of that for her previous behavior. So that's why that's going on. And uh, but, you know, you do. That's one of those you just said back. And we're like, nope, let them fight. Uh, one more thing on Colorado politics, though. You just mentioned it. We have a delineated line from some of these elections now. People don't like chaos and they don't like the crazy. And by crazy, we mean the election denial stuff. You just mentioned it. If this Congress, the GOP Majority Congress for the next two years, look, we know legislatively they're going to be pretty limited just by the math and they don't have the Senate and we've already seen the case. Look, they can't do the easy stuff. I'm calling me skeptical. They're going to get something big pushed through. If they just have nothing but investigations and that sort of rhetoric going into 2024, you just mentioned that Colorado is as a pretty purple, could go either way state in a lot of these races. How's that going to play, do you think, if all they have is the internet stuff, the investigation stuff? Not that there's maybe some important things there that needs to be done, but if that's all they got going in, how's that going to play?
2: Well, the percentage of people out there who genuinely care about Biden's laptop is, I don't know, 10%, 15%. So if you focus all of your time on investigations of, of a silly nature, I I do think that the debacle in Afghanistan deserves some investigations. But the other stuff, it's not serious. I think that the Republican Party needs to become, uh, again, that sort of big tent party, as opposed to trying to uh, excite that 10, 15% of the the deep red base. And that means putting forth serious ideas and and being the party that is a serious alternative to Democrat policies. And Democrats, the, the policies are bad. Uh, the whole idea that we can tax and spend our way out of a, a out of a deficit or, or a debt hole, the fact that we can, um, you know, continue to overregulate the economy, drive up inflation. Democrats need to own that, and they will own that when Republicans put forth serious ideas and get away from Trump and the far right fringe.
4: Yeah, I think so, too. Krista Kafer, we always enjoy talking to you. One more thing, just. What's some of the things, because look, East Coast, West Coast media bias is a real thing. What's a couple of things out West that's playing kind of big picture over the next year? We know Congress and that sort of thing. What's a story or two you're just kind of keeping dog-eared for uh, this could pop off in the spring or the summertime? What's one or two things you're watching that maybe the East Coast isn't paying attention to out West? What do you got on your radar?
2: Well, we definitely have issues with water out here. And so they, you know, there's the, the Western states, there's the upper basin and lower basin for the Colorado River and figuring out how to divvy up that water, how to keep the the dams that power up Las Vegas, uh, keep those dams and, and generators running is important. But also places like Arizona and California are kind of the breadbasket of the nation. Um, what do we need to do to make sure that that water eventually ends up going south uh, as well as uh, being able to supply front range with water and of course we also have a big agricultural community here and that's a little boring and wonky but my eye is always there also what happens when we don't have enough employees to you know to, to work at restaurants to work at retail outlets what happens when sort of the uh, the change of population and we get that that uh, we get fewer workers what is that ultimately gonna do for our economy is something that I, 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 I am keeping an eye on. I think about my great grandparents had 12 kids, my grandparents had five, my parents had two, my sister had one and I have no children. What happens when the population starts to uh, decrease? What does that do to the economy? That's kind of a long-term thing, not obviously specifically West, something that's gonna affect I think the entire country.
4: Yeah, that's a good one. One thing about it, though, is when you get those workers out there in the Denver area, wondering about those toll roads. I saw when my bill popped up after being out there for a week. Good lord, I'm telling you, <laughs> I thought the West Virginia—it's gotten expensive here. Man, I I racked up about ninety bucks worth in about five days. It was pretty oh, amazing, sure. but um, anyway, I still enjoyed it. Denver was great. Highly recommended uh Krista K for always enjoy you till we get you back on her tail again let folks know where they can keep up with you we're going to link to your Substack, let people know where they can find it your column at the Denver Post and everything else you got going on my friend
2: well let's see I got the Denver Post column I got the Substack. I'm occasionally on 850 KOA and also 630 KO if you're within uh <clears throat> within the reach of those radio stations and then I also if you're on channel 12's Colorado Inside Out on occasion so that's That's what I got going on. My biggest publicity, obviously, heard to tell.
4: Yeah, I I hope so, but I'm not sure we're there yet. I mean it, though. Denver was a wonderful place. Actually, um, some of the people we were out there for a wedding, they're going to be having a baby next year. Hopefully get back out there. Maybe we'll do food sometime, do this live. So we don't have all the technical issues we had this time, my friend. Chris Kafer, always great having you, my friend.
2: Great. Yeah, great being there. and yeah, uh, Yeah, let's get together and have a big bowl of chili.
4: Sounds good. Talk soon. Okay, he's back, been a little bit since we've seen him, but he's busy because he's one of these freelance journalists. That means they got to really, really, really hustle, uh, but he's really good at what he does. He's also a Young Voices contributor, and he has an opinion piece in USA Today. That's a good gift, my friend. We're going to talk about it. Peter Pitsky's back on Hertel. How are you, sir? Uh, doing good. Good to be here. Uh, great to have you back, my friend. You're one of those two. It's like, I forget you haven't been on the show because I talk to you so much. And then it's like, oh, you weren't actually on the show. I was just talking to you. So we love keeping you in the rotation, my friend. This is a really important topic. This is a topic that we have covered a lot on this program. In fact, when I first started doing this program, this is one of the, one of the first shows I wanted to do was on opioids and pain pills and abuse and all those sorts of things. It ended up being about the fifth or sixth one we did, but it was one of the very first ones. I was like, I want to cover this and we've covered it consistently over the course of this program. This is from the top down angle though. So just kind of broad stroke this for us, the CDC which everybody knows now after post-COVID, everybody's real Mm -hmm. familiar with what they do, right? Or let me rephrase that, what they're supposed to be doing. They've come out with some guidelines when it comes to opioids and pain pills and pain patients specifically. Why is this a big deal and why did you take to USA Today to try to explain it to folks?
3: Yeah, so the quick of it is in 2016, uh, the CDC under pressure because people are blaming uh, pain pills for the opioid crisis, which is basically an illicit fentanyl crisis, the, the crossover between your, your prescription that you get your pharmacy and what people are dying of on the street. There's very little cross-contamination between those groups. Anyhow, but that was the pressure. So they tried to solve with an opioids guideline, which they never done before, which basically sent a big signal out to the medical community that we do not want you prescribing opioids. It told law enforcement to come down hard on physicians and told state legislatures to start regulating more. That caused a mass wave of patient abandonment, not just in, not just pain patients, also people with cancer, palliative care, people at the end of life, also people who might need a surgery, sometimes acute care. So like if you go into the ER and you banged your head and you need uh, some hydrocodone, that would be harder to get. So they they people had been on top of them to fix this issue. It's been six years. And November, last November, they finally released their update. And some of the language is kind of positive, but as far as I can tell, it's just uh, make speak. It's not really all that serious. And in effect, this new guideline is more strict than the previous one. And from that we are already seeing more patient abandonment people. Uh, reporting their pain clinics being closed, uh, being told they will be able to get a, a, some pain medicine for when they have a surgery coming up, etc. And the CEC, what makes it worse is the CDC has used the language of we care about pain patients, don't um, abandon them, don't force taper them. But when you actually read the document and the evidence, this is what regulators and uh, those in public health will look at to make their decisions. It's harsher. It's not, it's not, um, It's not more free. It's more strict. And this is going to cause potentially some serious damage for an issue where there's already been, you know, a a huge iceberg hit.
4: Yeah. Peter Pinsky joining us. All right. Let's break this down because there's a couple of different moving parts here. Let's start with the pain pills themselves, opioids, whatever you want to call them. Mm -hmm. They don't have any agency. They're just pills. They lay there. Okay, they're just tools. You know, I can use a hammer to build a house or I can use a hammer to kill somebody. The tool doesn't care one way or the other. Right. The pain pills. The problem here is the steps that go between the medication and the patient, be that government regulation, be that the physicians, be that the pharmaceutical companies that make them. We know all three of those layers, the government bureaucracy. We have had some physicians that have been untoward and we have multiple court cases about the opioid manufacturers and some of the untoward things they've done. Those are all true. How do we take that as a group, though? Because we have patients that need this medication. We have medications being abused, but there's all these steps in the middle. That's what the CDC is supposed to be stepping in and regulating. But are they? They don't
3: seem they want to have uh, the authority to, to make big pronouncements for how opioids should be prescribed. But they don't want to actually have to deal with the consequences of their actions. Um, and and the pain pill question, yes, there were some doctors that ran uh, pill mills. Um, there were some people where it was diversion, but those were pretty minor in comparison to the population. You gotta remember, 100 million Americans or more every year you take an opioid for whatever reason. It is a basic building block of medicine. You don't have opioids, you don't have surgery. You don't have opioids, you don't have cancer care. You don't have opioids. I mean, you name the field of medicine, it's gonna be very difficult to do it if we don't have a good way to deal with the pain. Uh, Otherwise, people go into shock and they die. So it's a very basic building block and a ton of people use them. But there were people that got affected that were abusing it, particularly in Appalachia. And people thought, well, if we just make it so they can't get these pain pills, they'll make them stop their addiction, right? (laughs) Yeah, as if that as if that strategy has has worked yet all the many years we've now been trying to do this with the war on drugs. Anyhow, what came from that was that people moved on to more deadly substances. So they went from uh, oxycodone from uh, whoever they got. Usually they got from like a loved one or a friend or off the office street and they went from something that was relatively safe, or at least you knew what was in it, to stuff loaded with fentanyl, which is just killing oodles of people every year. Every year we now have 100 to 150,000 people are dying from fentanyl overdoses. Those fentanyl overdoses have nothing to do with pain patients. They have nothing to do with grandma that has cancer. That's not their fault but that's who got blamed ultimately for what was happening with the crisis. And that's where the public pressure went. And the CDC, for all their positive qualities, they're a cowardly organization. So even if they know they're supposed to do something that is right, if they have pressure, like we saw with COVID, that doesn't matter. The scientific inquiry doesn't really matter. It's what is the narrative? What looks important? How do we not get people uh, yelling down our throats? And that's what they went with. And here again, with the CDC and opioids, they've chosen a situation that puts uh, patients and those that need pain medicine at risk in favor of uh, pleasing the press and politicians.
4: Now, Peter Pischke joining us. There's a couple of definition things we need to deal with. And, you, know, you just talked about opioids. They're needed. They're good medicine when properly approved. Do we have a good handle on pain? I mean the word because we all use it. We all know, well, okay, we know what pain is. That's everything from ouchie to I can't deal with this and you pass out. That's a wide spectrum. Do we need to have a better conversation about things like pain and distinguish that from chronic pain and, pain, you know, like somebody with end-stage bone cancer, which is in the mm-hmm. most pain you can possibly be in as a human being compared to somebody that's, you know, lesser pain, that's acute pain, that's going to go away in a day or two. Do we need a better discussion on that before we even get to the medication side of this?
3: Probably.
4: I think fundamentally that's a
3: huge issue. I think Americans, we come from a very puritanical culture we come from a very can-do culture. And people, when they hear pain, Americans, they don't think, oh, he has pain. That's That's a medical necessity. When you get on top of it, they often think, well, just tough it out. It's just pain. If you can just get through it then there'll be no adverse consequences. That's not how it works. That's how people go into shock. That's, it doesn't work that way, but that's a lot. what a lot of people think. And we need to understand modern medicine, as many tricks as we have in our tool bag, we do not have a good handle on pain. We are basically using you know, 10th century technology to deal with the issue. And we haven't really found the silver bullet, kind of like we found um, with antibiotics to deal with infection. We don't really have that for pain. Yet Maybe one day we will. Maybe we will never. But we have to be honest about tools we have now and uh, adjust our policies and regulations for the population we have now and not play pretend with what might be in the future because the people are here this moment and they are suffering because you are not letting them get their basic pain prescription. And they might have been a disability patient for 20 years or they might have documented end stage cancer. It's
4: ridiculous. Yeah. Peter Pitsky joining us. You just mentioned it. We say things, I'm guilty of this too. I say things like regulation, guidelines, things like this. We blow past what they actually are. This stuff has to be written down, laws, especially regulations, especially medical guidelines. The black and white really matters. And the terminology in the black and white really matters. And you get into it in your piece in USA Today is what's supposed to be guidelines. And you already mentioned it. the CDC likes to make these broad pronouncements. So they make these pronouncements. And then doctors adjust to it the you know the drug companies adjust to it the patients are trying to adjust to it are the actual written down black and white regulations matching what they're saying because that's part of the problem here too
3: for the most part no there are a few tweaks that are positive um and we're glad they're there but for the most part no mostly that's the hardest part of this new guideline is when they did the presser um, when the head of the NCIPC, who's the—that's the National Center for Injury Prevention—they're the group in charge of guidelines. When they went out there, they said, "Oh, we're doing this to help pain patients." You know, shouldn't ban your pain patients and Sarah, thats the front. But then you go into the part that people actually look like, and they know this. They have all the data we do. They have—they know how all this works, and that's the part that matters. And that's the one that's two-faced. And I know many people want to give them credit for for the tweaks they have made, and those are good, but.
2: It's, it's, it's,
3: you know, if the meteor is heading towards Earth and you, you knock a few chips off it, it's still a great, you know, huge ball of death coming at you. That doesn't solve the problem. And the problem is we have a massive issue of people not being able to access pain medicines and those around it for very serious issues. And that is just, that's just hurting a lot of people. The CDC know it, but the CC don't want to take the responsibility of what it would take to undo this or at least tell people, please knock it off. You know, there are legitimate people that need this, and that actually means you might have to change your laws or how you handle the situation.
4: Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutan. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Yeah, Peter Pitsky joining us, journalist, writer, a good friend of the programs. You go through the numbers here, but for the audience, look, this is terminology heavy. People, you start talking about MME levels, people's eyes start rolling around. When people try to look at this in the news context, a news story, and in your piece, what's one of the numbers or one or two of the numbers that they need to really key on even if they don't have the medical background, to understand what these changes mean and what should pique their interest to dig into these a little further?
3: Yeah, I think, so the pain patient ones, while those are very important and it's flabbergasting what those numbers mean, a lot of people sometimes say, well, you know, they they can, like I said, they can live through that. Why does it matter? So let's move past that. Let's go to something everyone agrees on. Cancer, end of life, right? There is no justifiable reason for someone that is dying that you shouldn't be able to get them some oxycodone. Okay, what, they're going to get addicted? They're going to die anyways. Okay, so everyone probably agrees on that. So what has happened to cancer patients? And here are three basic stats. Uh, It's in the article. I'll just read from it. A 2020 study from the National Center Institute found a 21% decrease in opioid prescriptions from oncologists, which means those that are cancer doctors for patients, 21% decrease. A study in the Journal of Pain and Symptom Management found that hospice patients who had an opioid prescription when discharged dropped from 91% in 2010 to 79% in 2018. So that means less people who are at end of life are being given access to pain medicine. And here's this last one, which just blows my mind. Other research like last year's study from the Journal of Clinical Oncology shockingly found that the number of opioids prescribed per destinants, so those who died on Medicare declined 38%, while the number of emergency room visits for these patients increased by over 50%. So we have a situation where even people who are at end of life, even people with cancer, we are seeing dramatic decreases in access to pain medicine. And when they are getting pain medicine, the amount is being decreased. And there, there just is no moral or scientific justification to me that makes any of that make sense. I know we can disagree about uh, addiction and you know what is necessary to fix there, but there is no justification
4: for this stat. What, it's, it's crazy. It's insane. Yeah, Peter Pisky, joining us. is part of the problem here, what we've already talked about, look, CDC, no matter what its stated goal is, it's still a government bureaucracy, a very big government bureaucracy at that. Government bureaucracy is not nimble. That's not what they do. We learned that during COVID. Yep. You know, they just don't change quick. You have different kinds of medicine, Palli- palliative care. You just talked about it into life care where the standards should probably be a little different. Emergency room care, where there's obviously going to be a need for immediate pain management so you can find out what's going on because you may have a trauma situation. I'll use myself as an example. I remember when I had my heart surgery, my cardiologist famously would walk, Dr. Leonard Do, God bless him, love the guy, can't save my life. He walks in, he's like, I've never had a patient die of pain. You'll be okay with the pain. But he's a cardiologist. He's, you know, pain pills slows mm-hmm. down your heart. It affects your blood pressure. That's a different thing than when I see my GI doctor who's like, no, we need to manage your pain so we can find out whether you're working or not. Medicine has different components. It seems to me just on the outside reading through this material, we don't do a real good job of distinguishing between those when it comes to something like pain medicine, like palliative care should probably have a little looser regulation than maybe you know chronic care should have than maybe emergency care should have. Is that a fair way of looking and asking and getting into some of these questions, do you think? Yes, very fair. The other problem is is that it's,
3: Thankfully, medicine, for the most part, our institutions are intact than, say, a lot of uh, other American institutions. But the problem in, with medicine is they can very much get into the regulatory bureaucracy. And if they get stuck on a bad idea, it might take them 10, 20 years to get out of it. Uh, it. So even though we know, for example, that what we knew about Alzheimer drugs and what causes Alzheimer's is bunk, it's still taking forever for us to get away from that. And for the people who are on the CC, I'm sure some of them feel that they did make big changes here. But for the normal person and who these affect, these are piecemeal changes. And at the rate of change they're doing this, it's going to take a long time for things to really switch and to get better. And while for them it's an academic question, for the people that are living their lives who can't get pain medicine right now, that is real life. That is past academic. But medicine is not set up in such a way to be able to respond to things. This is why COVID was so It was so hard to get rid of bad ideas or to move on from them, because that's not how our medical uh, regulatory agencies and institutions like the AMA work.
4: Yeah. Peter Pischke joining us. You mentioned academically. There's also a legal component to this. You talk about it in your piece in USA Today. Look, we understand that one of the problems with medicine is it's human lives and government bureaucracy and medical science and a business component all underneath a legal umbrella of liability that's a big ball of mess to try to deal with on a good day, right? Mm -hmm. But you mentioned it here, the way they're dealing with this and these new guidelines and the way they're trying to deal with some of the prescription monitoring. And you can explain that if you're putting prescribers or medical people in a legally tough situation, they're not going to touch it because they've already got liability out the wazoo. They already have to pay for their malpractice insurance and all this. We've seen this in other areas of regulation, If you start giving them an iffy legal situation, they're just going to stop doing it altogether to protect themselves, which is understandable, right? There's a danger to that, to the prescription process, if these guidelines go through and you cover it and you just kind of lay it out. So there's like the potential legal liability for prescribers here. This could be a real, real bad issue. Yes, definitely.
3: Human nature is to avoid risk. We we this goes back to our caveman days where we we have we take risk and we over escalate. I can't escalate it because if we get that wrong, we're dead. So humans naturally take risk and they pump it up in their heads. For physicians, you have to remember the kind of burns they're dealing with. They are spending 45 minutes usually on paperwork per patient. They have to deal with all, like you said, the legal uh, consequences that sometimes come with this. And if the CDC says something like, you know, yes, you have to, when you prescribe People payments. You also prescribe Narcan. For us, it's like, oh, that sounds good. Yeah, that makes sense. But for a doctor, like, so you're saying if I mess this up, that I might get, you know, uh, caught by law enforcement, I'll be in a civil suit, and that's how they work. They they see the they see the risk. And in the United States, the, a medical tort is just humongous. So the chances of risk for these physicians, I mean, my brother is going through medical school and now residency right now. And that's a main thing they teach you, you have to be so careful, not even, it's not even an issue of treating your patient badly, but to have the appearance of mishandling it. And so when you take something like opioids, and they're so politically charged um, in politics and the media, and the narrative, they're not gonna touch that thing with a 10-foot pole. They might be good people and they might love treating their patients, but if they have most of them at the end of the day, if they have to choose between their careers and livelihood and not going to jail and their pain patient, they're picking the former, which is understandable. That doesn't make it right, but that's the situation we're in currently.
4: Peter Pitsky, you talked about another thing in your piece that I think is really important to talk about. We've seen this in other areas of government regulation. It's been talked about a lot recently, especially post-COVID. When government does a guideline, it becomes a de facto mandate. We've seen this through COVID. We've seen this in other areas of regulation, both medical and in other things. These regulatory agencies doing guidelines, and then they get enforced as if they're mandates. Well, that's one thing when you're closing a business or doing a safety thing or something like that. When you start dealing with people's medication, this seems to me like one area where we really need to get some very specific answers on what they can and can't do, shouldn't we?
3: Yeah, that, as Jeffrey Singer uh, said, I shared some of that quote. Um, when the government gives you a recommendation, that's like the mob giving you a recommendation. <laughs> it's like, yeah, we're, you know. Uh, we would like you to please donate. We think it would be good for your security. Yeah, no. It, it People do not interpret that way. There isn't a way in our framework culturally or legally to do that. So pe- people say, is this the law or is it not? Even if they know better, even if they're scholars or they're esteemed politicians or what have you. That's just how it works. Okay, And, and part of this, I think part of all this stuff is that we're pretending that it doesn't work like that. And then we can just make big pronouncements and make little tweaks and they'll be okay. When the actuality is people interpret these things in a very basic way and human nature is basically known.
4: Yeah. Peter Pitsky joining us. Okay. We know the numbers. You have them all throughout your piece. We're going to link to it, by the way, read the whole thing. It's got a lot of links in there too. You want to read through the links and and go through all the stuff he lays out. If we have so many Americans that need some form of pain medication or pain treatment. Here's the problem we just saw with the speaker fight. They, nobody shut down Congress over pain pill management or the CDC. You know, we haven't had a presidential debate question on the CDC that I remember in my lifetime. This is not a front burner in the political and commentary sphere right now. But this seems like it affects so many more people than a lot of the political things we're discussing day to day. How do we get this conversation more into the daily talk when we talk about it on our social media, when folks are just talking with their family? Because, look, you if it's not you, you're going to have a family member that has this situation, right? Just statistically, it's going to happen. How do we individually start talking about this differently to start pushing the ball forward? because this seems to me like one of those things that's going to be the public pushing the policy more than the policy pushing the public right yes and
3: it, it will it'll be slow uh, i believe i do believe change will happen i i hope sooner rather than later but you're right there isn't there isn't really any vested interest that would benefit by letting people have access to pain medicine and leaving them alone i think for individuals you need to if you have a story of yourself or a loved one that have been mistreated medically you should share that story. I think if you have a chance to talk to a legislator or someone in the media and that's a concern, you should talk about it to them. A big part of this is the stigma uh, people in media. For example, when I was pitching this piece, Everett, I didn't think anyone would care about it. When we got through with USAJ, by the way, awesome. Really loved working with them. The, the outreach was crazy. The amount of people that responded. It's one of the most successful pieces I've done traffic-wise. And that's because there's so many people being affected by it. So there is, there is a population there. And I think if there's a bit of a, a, an illusion here that it, it isn't big and that it doesn't matter. But what happens in our individual lives, when you're a loved one, you know, my grandma has congestive heart failure right now. When you lose a loved one, when you're going through these health crises, these are some of the most meaningful and difficult episodes of your life. They mean something. And that's that's powerful. That is a powerful fact that will transcend politics or anything else. But we probably have to be a little brave in sharing their st- these stories and getting it out there.
4: All right, Peter Pischke. let's let's zoom out for a second though, because one of the nice things of this medium is you didn't just write the piece and put it out. There's been a lot of re- there's been a lot of response. There's been pushback. There's been corrections. There's been people talking about it. You've seen a lot of stuff move with this piece more than probably. I think you said this is the most read thing you've ever done. What is the response to this piece taught you? Give us the after the story kind of thing, because we always write it and it's like you put it out in the atmosphere and hope somebody reads it. You don't have to wonder, man, this stuff, this thing moves some numbers. What have you learned from the response that makes you think about this subject a little differently, maybe? One
3: thing I think I've learned is that it, it crosses political borders and there are very few issues that do. No one, no one came to it as a Republican or Democrat. No one really came to it uh, from a class view or a race view. It seems to be a very, you know, there are very few things there are the, there are these way these days for issues, but it seems to cross all divides. Um, I also learned it's much more thorough and impacting than even I quite realize. I think part of that is we've had an increase since November. Uh, a little difficult, I mean, emotionally, if I'm being honest, because so many people reached out to me on email, um, direct messages, Facebook, etc., cetera, telling me, thank you so much for sharing it. And then they would tell me something that happened to them or something that happened to a loved one. And that's heavy. And those are, it, it makes me a little depressed because I feel that there are just so many people who are suffering whose stories aren't being told. It, it gives me hope maybe in the sense that we will get past this because enough people are affected um in in the end the numbers win i think that's what we learned with the prohibition but it it takes time and how much time i do not know but i pray for all of our sakes it is much sooner rather than later
4: yeah peter pitsky we're going to link to the piece it's in usa today it's had a huge response i saw a lot of real big name people on social media what really blew me away was it was across the spectrum it you know People that if they interacted with each other would not get along at all. And they were all retweeting this piece and making comments about it. That's pretty special. Um, Let me ask it to you this way, though. When you get a response like that, it feels like this is an issue just begging for more attention. What do you think the next steps are? We know the CDC is a big beast. We got kind of a divided Congress. Is it gonna be a local level? You mentioned in your piece, there's some like 38 state legislatures that are re already legislatively reacting to this. Is it gonna be a legislative fix at the state level? Is it gonna be a policy fix in the national level? What do you think the next steps are for this subject?
3: National could solve it, but they aren't gonna take it up because they don't like doing their job on anything, let alone something unpopular. Their uh, best bet things will change is statewide, and it's it, we we don't quite know because we've had some amazing laws passed the last two years. Um, there's a fantastic law in New Hampshire. Minnesota just passed a great law. There's uh, Oregon has seen some great legislation. But when those come in conflict with law enforcement, who sometimes ignore a lot of this stuff, when it comes to conflict of the state medical boards, it's hard to tell who wins. State medical boards, I think, is where we'll see the most change because I think those are fed by the physicians and they are in the medical community. And though they're sometimes slow to respond to it, it's going to catch up at some point. I think if we were going to focus on where there actually might be potential for change, it's that level. And just people being aware of this and and making it part of, you know, their charitable efforts. You know, this is just something you kind of need to be aware of. And Let's, you know, your neighbor Nancy doesn't have access to her payments. Well, you know, let's bring her some soup. I don't (laughs) like let's let's take care of each other and treat each other neighborly like we should for any other heavy thing. And this is just another one of them.
4: Yeah, well, you definitely hit a nerve with this piece. I'm excited for you. I'm glad that people are recognizing what a great writer you are and the way you can provoke thought on an important topic. So well done, sir. You actually do mostly culture stuff, though, and other things. You also cover disability and the opioid crisis. You cover a lot of swath, my friend. So let folks know where they can follow you, what you have going on, and where they can keep up with you until we get you on Hertel again.
3: Yeah, it is, a, it is quite eclectic. I don't know how I ended up in this position. Um, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Happy Warrior P. Um, I, I do write, I kind of get all over the place. So you can usually find me on Google or find me on Twitter. I do a, a culture podcast, CultureScape, which is kind of fun. That's just, it's, yeah, I just pretty much do that just for me, just because I like the topic. Um, but yeah, and I appreciate you saying that. You know, I love your work, Andrew. I, it's been an honor to be able to interact with you. I wish I had better news. Like, I I like I'm glad that people are uh, gelling with this article, but th- at the same time, it's like, oh, shoot, <laughs> this is not good. This situation is really bad. Uh, and I I just wish it wasn't this way.
4: Yeah, the, the military term is you screw yourself into a job. So now people are going to be like, hey, write me another piece on that over and over again. But the flip side of that is it's really important and you stumbled onto something that you both care about and you are knowledgeable on and it really hit a vein. So just please keep the good work coming. Uh, culture podcast, something he does as well. A lot of fun. Make sure you're following that. He's a young voices contributor. We're going to have him on anytime he wants to come on. Cause he's a great writer, good reporter, Peter Pitchkey, Thank you so much for the time, sir. Oh, thank you. Yes, sir. Welcome back to Herd Tell. OK, he's one of our favorites, somebody I highly respect and talk to because I value his opinion greatly, even when he's wrong. <laughs> Dennis Saunders is back on the program, Ordinary Times contributor, writer, also a pastor up in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, the Twin Cities. You can tell that from the vest and the heavy shirt he's wearing because I hear it's might cold up there this time of year, my friend.
6: Yeah, it is cold. And we are just about a week ago, got about 15 inches here in the Twin Cities, so Got a lot of snow, so it's uh break out the best.
4: <laughs> break out the best. He's got a lot of different things going. You have heard the advertisement, uh, his Church of Main podcast doing excellently well. You've heard the commercials right here on Herd Tell. We're proud to support that. Make sure you check that out. But you've also been doing some political writing, my friend. Um, this is not a new theme for you in the couple of years I've known you. The GOP. Here's why I wanted to address this, because you've been talking for a while about institutionally what the republican party is isn't what it's changed into what it isn't here's where i bring this up i think the speaker fight that we just watched that you know what's one of our core values here things don't happen in a vacuum they happen in a sequence that speaker fight didn't happen in a vacuum freedom caucus that's been going on since you know for 2014 2015 a little before some of the same players uh kevin mccarthy that goes back even further Uh, there's history there. This is a lot of the caucus that he already led. This is all, of course, in post-Trump GOP, where everybody's trying to figure out what role he has. This is a party, when you talk about, and I'm going to link to some of your writing, both in Medium and other places about this, when you're talking about institutionally what the Republican Party is,
6: do we know? Well, I think what it is is that it's not an institution, or at least it's not anymore. And I would argue it probably hasn't been for about a decade or so. It is you know, an institution, especially a political party, is a, a party that can is a group of people that can kind of have some type of of boundaries and rules and do things like raising money or um, trying to kind of work out between people who disagree and You know the Republican Party doesn't do any of that and so what we saw with um I mean 15 rounds to get uh Kevin McCarthy a speaker is that you don't really have a political party or or, or you don't really have an institution and in some ways not even a political party what you have are a lot of different people um and um, lots of different personalities and When you kind of have that, basically what you have is mob rule. You you don't really have any type of order at all.
4: Yeah, Dennis Saunders joining us. Let's go through some of this history because you and I are of the age that in our adult lifetimes we've watched. Let's go from Gingrich because that's when this thing kind of started really changing. Uh, Mm -hmm. Of course, the contract with America, the GOP gets its first house majority leader in a generation. Big doings, right? Well... I look I remember this because this was you know right when I started voting <laughs> for the first time uh, we went through Livingston we went through Gingrich okay. they both had to resign for uh, untoward things we'll leave it at that you kids can go Google those things in your own time but luckily the Republican Party was saved by Dennis Hassert oh yeah mm-hmm. who didn't you know did prison time for abusing children <laughs> Then we get to 2015, they deposed Bonner with a motion to vacate the chair. That's why that was such a big deal. And Kevin McCarthy really, really wanted it, but he got kneecapped by a couple people, Walter Jones, rest in peace, and some other with an anonymous letter with some allegations. Again, I'm not going to go into it. Y'all go Google it, read your own history. So McCarthy didn't get the brass ring there. They went and offered uh, the store to somebody from up your neck of the woods mm-hmm. um, to come in and save the day. This is, look, this isn't something that just keeps happening. This is a pattern. The House leaders in the GOP cannot keep control of this caucus. That's more than one factor. It's not just the Freedom Caucus. It's not just Trump. This has been going on for, you know, years now.
1: Why?
6: I think because little by little, I mean, both parties little by little, have put more and more power in things like primaries um, that basically get the most kind of reactionary or, or radical people uh, to vote. And of course, they're going to vote in the most reactionary or radical people. Um, but it's happening asymmetrically, because I think the Democrats at least have some sense of control over their people. Um, you know, a lot has been said about the squad um, and being from the Twin Cities, I am represented by one of the, the squad. Um, and um, they have um, caused a lot of headache, but I think especially uh, Pelosi was able to put some constraints on them and they weren't able to wreak as much havoc as um could be could have been expected, but I think there has been a lot more institutional rot in the GOP um, less of a um, there has been basically no controls anymore. So when you have someone like um, a um, Kevin McCarthy, he basically ends up powerless. He has to give as many concessions as possible um, in order to get people to vote for him or even even just to vote present um, and so in the end he does not have any sense of power and but that has been something that has been going on for years because um, the institution in, in many ways has been just whittled away there isn't anything anymore that keeps people in line um, now, in the senate there is still some of that um you know mitch mcconnell still has some control over um his his people um and you can see that things get done in the senate um among his his caucus that i'm pretty sure is not going to happen um with mccarthy and You know, we can't even really say how long McCarthy is going to remain in power because um, he could easily uh, be deposed a month from now or, or, or even a week from now.
4: Is joining us. This is part of institutional political party, too, though. Mm-hmm. The rules package. I know people don't want to exactly. talk about it. The motion to vacate the chair has been something that's been talked to. We just talked about it. You know, this is how John Boehner was doing things. And people didn't like how John Boehner was doing things. So they this is how they got rid of him. This is part of the institutional stuff. And this is why I understand the argument people are making about is, well, they're hashing this out. Well, here's a couple problems with that argument. Kevin McCarthy was the minority leader of mostly this same group of people, with a couple of exceptions of who just came in with this election. But ideologically, those aren't very different. He even made a joke about it to Hakeem Jeffries, and everybody laughed. He said, Look, I had 100% of this caucus two years ago. To see what happened. Well, yeah, we saw what happened. You're the same guy with the same people. You didn't really have control of them. You didn't really have leadership of them. Forget the politics. I'm just talking basic leadership. This is the same group of people. He, it wasn't just that. He's had years to work on this, he's been working on this for years, and he couldn't get it done with this group of people. That's part of what we're talking about, the levers of power, actually welding power. You mentioned it with the folks on the left and the Democratic Party, the conservative and right leaning folks will all go, well, of course, they're more ideologically aligned. I'm not sure that's really true. I think no, they just have a better true. handle on things. And yes, there's some more ideological alignment. But part of that's because y'all haven't, Kept your folks in line, and you don't have the leadership to keep them in line. Is that a fair way to put it?
6: Yeah, I would actually go and say <clears throat> there probably are people that want to keep people in line, but I don't think that they have necessarily the power or the structure to do so anymore. Um, one of the things that I has, has always bothered me when people are commenting about Republicans, especially Republicans in the House when it comes, especially during the Trump years, is that, well, you know, why didn't they stand up to Trump? Well, the fact is, there were a lot of representatives that did stand up to Trump. Um, Mark Sanford did. So did Peter Meyer. Um, so did Jamie Herrera Butler. Of course, all of those people are no longer in Congress. And the problem is, is that those people, they do stand up But they get primary because these people they will find someone that will run against them and because of course there is no no structure there's nothing there to protect those members in a way that let's say if a democrat were somewhat critical would be somewhat protected from their leadership the leadership in the gop that just doesn't have that power and so Not only do they have the power there to protect people, but they don't have a power of reining people in. Um, You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene lost her committee, committee assignments in the Democratic um, Congress. That's not gonna happen now. Um, One, because McCarthy needs her, but two, she's quite powerful, I mean, And not powerful from an institutional standpoint, but powerful from a personal standpoint because she has a following and people will go after him. Um, And so. That type of loss of structure means you can't control anyone and you also can't speak up for uh, when something is going wrong because there's just nothing there. All it is is pure personality.
4: Yeah, Dennis Saunders joining us. Let's talk about that for a second when it comes to the Republican Party. And the Democrats have this, too. So you all want to say, well, what? I understand that. We're just not talking about them right now. We can talk about them some other time. Mm-hmm. Congress, you always have a couple cranks because there's always these little pockets of the country where you just get a wackadoo that's in Congress for 40 years. It's always been that way. You can go back to the first Congress. You can go back to the 1800s, the 1900s, whatever. You know, this, There's always been these folks on here. The problem now is with nationalization. Now, when you get a Matt Gates or you get a Lauren Bobbert, they're fundraising off whatever's going on on camera mm-hmm. in real time. You know, Matt Gates should not be able to hold up a speaker vote by himself. But that yeah. just happened because it's changed. What you just talked about, Marjorie Taylor Greene, of course, is a little smarter than the rest of them. She buddied up to McCarthy because she wants those committee assignments back. Mm-hmm. Let's all be adults about that. But she switched sides because she's like, oh, I can go to them and I can get power back. I'm going to get power that way. People like Gates and Bobbert, they don't care. They just want power through the attention. But they get power through the attention. And that's the change I don't think we've really dealt with. So to be fair, and I'm, I'm all for bashing McCarthy because he, he you know, he, he, he authored this play himself. However, I think that part of it's just beyond his control. It's changed. And the GOP has been so driven in the Trump era by this stuff. I don't know that you can have any institutional control over that. Is that a fair way to put it?
6: Yeah, I, I don't think you can have any institutional control right now. And I don't even know if, if you are ever going to have institutional control. One of the things I think that that kind of going back to Donald Trump is that, I you know, I think. Trump is not a smart person, but he is a cagey person. He has that kind of animal instinct. And one of the things I think he sensed early on was that the GOP didn't really have a structure and that he could just come in and take it over. And that is exactly what he did. And so, and also now you have a whole bunch of kind of little Trumps that are coming in doing the same thing. They know that there is no structure they know that they won't be punished for um acting like a jackass uh, on in national television they will be actually probably be rewarded so as long as there's not anything there they can do what they want and the thing about institutions i think they are pretty easy to knock down and i think this is within the gop has been the the structure has has been knocked down over years, but it takes a heck of a long time to rebuild ins- institutional structure. And so I don't see us rebuilding a structure within the GOP within the next five years or so. I mean, you can start, but it's gonna take a long time. And in the meantime, you're gonna have lead- you're gonna have people like Lauren Bulbert and Matt Gates just kind of taking a wrecking ball to the american political system
4: yeah dennis saunders join it look the easy thing to go is just sit back and go not my circus not my monkeys i'm not cleaning this mess up look you can chisel unaffiliated voter mm-hmm. on my voter card it's not changing anytime soon it's been that way for a while mm-hmm. so it would be easy for me to just say that however It is unhealthy for the country, for the GOP to be in this state, regardless of what your political persuasion is. I don't think they have a bit of appetite for any kind of institutional control. To be fair, I don't think they could do it if they wanted to with the current leadership, even if they had an appetite to do it. It's going to take some outside leader, not outside as in not Republican, but outside of not this current group to come in, take control of the whole thing and redo it. This is always going to be personality based from now on, or yeah. at least in the near future. So if you got a strong leader, you'll have a strong party. When you don't have a strong leader, you won't have a strong party. That looks like a cycle that's going to continue for a while.
6: Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that I think it's going to take at least 10 or 15 years to, to get in a new crop of people that are going to be able to build something. Uh, again, because it just takes a long time to rebuild all of these things. You have to, one, I don't know if we even have the institutional memory, and then two, you have to kind of d- um, grow new leaders that can actually kind of come up with different ways and also have something that can kind of depose the current system um, if you can call it a system. But um, yeah, I think we're just gonna have to kind of deal with the political system as it is right now, which is a mess and it's going to be a mess. Um, Again, because in some ways, I think the GOP hasn't spent the time trying to preserve parts of the, the system um, with very few examples, you know, the only uh, only example of someone that I think is trying to preserve some sort of a, of a sense of order in a system, again, is Mitch McConnell. But other than that, there is nothing left and you're just going to have to rebuild and rebuilding anything takes time. And in the meantime, it's just going to be sheer hell.
4: Dennis Saunders joining us. Let's talk about Mitch real quick, though, because here's the thing. he, he He's smart. He knows what's going on. And despite what some folks on the on the MAGA right are telling you, he, he's pretty effective in what he does. Uh, yes. There's nothing that Donald Trump accomplished that didn't go through Mitch McConnell. Sorry. Mm-hmm. That's just the facts. All those Supreme Court justices, all that. Mitch can read a calendar and he can read seats. He knows that if he can just hang in there for the next two years – All the heat's going to be on this GOP House. They're going to have a good look at getting the Senate back just because of the geography of it, because they got six or seven swing states and or red states that are going to be very, very gettable. He's sitting there looking like I'm going to get one more run at this majority leader. I may even get a Republican president if I'm lucky about it. And the GOP House is going to be a circus and they're going to get all the heat and I can just ride under the radar for a while. That's pretty much the plan. Yeah.
6: Yes, it is he he is not a dummy and he knows how to play the long game um, I think the 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 thing about the current leadership or lack thereof is that they don't play the long game they really only pay for the the current moment um, and you know basically they're in the business of fundraising and getting and getting clicks um, McConnell is in there for the long game so he knows, What he needs to do to um, stay in power, to maintain the power, to grow power. Um, And I think that that's going to be the thing that you're going to see come 24. um, Also, because because I think that uh, Donald Trump's power is somewhat diminished. He's probably not going to be picking as many Senate candidates in two years. So it's kind of all gravy for him and all he has to do is kind of wait and see the house basically kind of immolate themselves and um, he's there to pick up the pieces.
4: Yeah. Dennis Saunders. I hate to project because we're always wrong when we project, but I'm just looking at the calendar here. We have the debt limit coming up in August. We already know that that's a non-starter for the same people that just, you know, McCarthy just had to give the house away We're going to have some kind of a budget and or continuing resolution in October, right after that McCarthy doesn't get out of this year intact. Does
6: he? I don't even know if he gets out of this year as speaker. I mean, I just don't, I think they're going to find some way of, of, of excuse of trying to get rid of him. And so I just don't see that he's going to to last there very long. I think, you know, it was a victory for him on Friday, but I think it's going to be a pyrrhic victory. And I think, those same people are going to find some way of um, getting him out and stabbing him in the back.
4: Yeah, probably Dennis Saunders. I'll leave it at this with you though. Cause I'll ask you, cause again, it's easy for me to just sit back and lob bombs at it, but to be fair, what's the hope if you're a Republican party person who wants the party to be okay and to have less chaos, because you're going to have some chaos here. Is it a presidential candidate that comes in and reigns all this in? Is it the next ideological guy? Is it some kind of change? Is it, well, maybe this GOP house is so chaotic, maybe we start changing course,
6: or do you have no hope? Where are you at on all this? Well, um, I'm kind of all over the place. I think there is some hope in at the state level. Um, you know, we saw what happened in Georgia, Georgia, um, in November, that it was kind of the the non-Trumpy candidates that were the ones that won. Um, and that happened in other states as well. I think, you know, seeing people like, even though they are they have now are leaving office, but Larry Hogan and Charlie Baker, that's somewhat hopeful. But I think one of the things that is um both hopeful and frustrating is that I think the people that I would like to have seen really kind of help to um, maybe at least start with the rebuilding um, are people kind of kind of like me that would would have been never Trump folk. Um, and I feel like that was a lost opportunity, that we haven't really done that. Um, but we spent more time just kind of lobbying bombs instead of um, basically saying, OK, we need to kind of build something even if it's an exile so that when the time comes we're ready Um, and that hasn't been done i think that for whatever reason maybe it's just anger at, at what has happened over the last few years but we haven't spent that time really trying to build the structure trying to find candidates um that can be a better alternative um and so that's kind of a, a lost hope there. So I think that the, you know, the, the picture for me is mixed. I think there are still some, there's still some hope at the state level um, that can I think make some kind of maintain kind of or at least present a different alternative um, than what's happening in Washington. But at least at the national level, I won't say that there is no hope. But I think it's one of those things where you just have to be patient and it's going to be a long time and it's going to be ugly and it's going to be frustrating.
4: Yeah, well, you don't have a long time because we got a presidential election cycle underway right now. So good luck to that. We'll see how Yay. that all takes out. <laughs> Dennis Saunders, one of our good friends, talking a little GOP this time uh we'll spend a little time bashing the other side next time just for equal time but it's good to talk about this instead of some of the other stuff we've had to talk about before my friend let folks know where they can follow you they can hear your advertisement for your podcast but you got three or four different things going on that really touch on some good stuff i think somebody needs to touch on and i like hearing your opinion it. let folks know where they can find you follow you what you got going on until we get you back on her
6: again sure well you can uh look at my Substack that has the, my podcast and also um, my, um, some articles that I write on religious issues. And that is at churchandmain, uh, um You can also um, go to um, my, the website, it's kind of a direct website for the, um, for the podcast at churchandmain.org. And then also, um, if you want to read some of the articles that I write, especially on um, political issues, um, that is at Dennis Sanders all one word dot medium dot com. And you can find me on um, um, on Twitter at Denmin.
4: Yep, that's been with two ends, like Minnesota for those of you from Logan. Uh, it's all good stuff. I get, look, I like talking religion with you. I like talking pop culture with you stuff. Just always appreciate your opinion a great deal. My friend, I find you to be a unique voice, but somebody I respect and listen to on a lot of things. So always appreciate your time. Hope people find your stuff and, uh, love the podcast. Keep doing what you're doing, my friend. All right. Take care. All right, sir. Talk soon. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Let's talk some economics. Every time we talk economics, we go get an actual economist. What a concept, huh? And this here be one of those certified, bonafide economist fellas. He works for a government agency, but these are his and his alone opinions. We love having him on. He's one of our favorites. And because I know it annoys him greatly, I will call him Dr. Stephen Popic. How are you, sir? Uh, it's not so bad. I'm doing great today.
5: It's a beautiful Friday. A little bit chilly here in D.C.
4: Hey, you show up in a collared shirt. We're actually going to give you the nomenclature. You look halfway professional today, my friend.
5: Um, uh, to, to be fair, I have a work meeting after this, so I need to look professional.
4: Yeah, every now and then I'll be I'll be dressed up doing one of these, and somebody's like, "Why are you wearing a tie?" It's like, "Well, I had TV, I had a TV hit right after that, so I had to like dress up or some stuff." If I'm dressed up on Hertel, you know I got a media hit right after or right before or something like that. All right, brother. Hope you're having a good New Year. New Year, same problems. I want to start here. We talk every time you come on here, I talk about like the numbers and how this just spins our head and explain. I think we need to just start with some basic building blocks of how an economy actually works, because we hear bits and pieces of news story and we don't put them all together. We know the financial success for a person in life has a very basic formula to it. Vaguely, there's some exceptions, but the rule is education, job, housing. That's the three-legged stool for financial success, give or take. Now there's other factors, and there's stability, and what kind of career, and whatever, whatever. But those are the three things, right? Well, we have a weird labor market, and we have a housing crisis that we don't really want to talk about outside of you know the nerdosphere that keeps bringing it up and trying to get it into the conversation. Yep. If we're going to have a healthy economy, at some point we need to talk about these basic building blocks things like housing, and not just the unemployment number. But employment that can get folks into the housing, which gives them equity, which is much more important than income equity, because that continues. This is the basic stuff of economics. We don't spend a lot of time talking about even among economists.
5: So here, let's 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 break down one thing you didn't say that was important about housing. Right. If there's jobs over here, people that are over here need to go somewhere and potentially live near where the jobs are. Now, there are the remote jobs these days, but let's talk about the vast majority of workers that are not working remotely or working from home, right, to, to, to that extent. Um, solving the housing problem means that we have better labor mobility to go to places where the jobs are. And without that, you don't have a well-functioning labor market right because the people that you want to have working in your city can't get to your city because your city doesn't have housing or the housing is way too bloody expensive and the the truth is you know this is not a national level solution uh it's not a national level solution in in the uk it's not a national level solution in japan it's not a national level solution in the United States, there are things that the federal governments of those countries and others can do to nudge things into the right way, to allow for more building, to allow for more density options, um, et cetera. But these are fundamentally things that happen at the local level, with our local politicians—you know, the folks that actually do things that we never hear about—and um, as these local-level decisions that oftentimes are preventing. Um, the development of housing or the types of housing that our cities and countries and counties need.
4: Yeah. And let's talk about the local part of that real quick. San Francisco legendarily has some of the strictest building codes in America. It's really hard to build something new in San Francisco, not just because it's extraordinarily expensive, but because. Yeah. And the earth, and look, that's something they don't. That's something they don't talk about. You have to build something much differently there because of the earthquake stuff. If you build on the beach, you got to build at hurricane strength. That's part of it. But they have super strict building codes. They have strict building codes. They have historical building codes where you have to fit into the neighborhoods. All this, it's really hard to build there. Then you go to like a suburb of Houston where there's almost no rules. Yeah, and you can build anything you want.
5: Most of the residential land in San
4: Fran is zoned single family. Right. So you can't build multifamily housing or a can't even build a housing.
5: You can't even build a duplex that looks like a single family house.
1: Right, there's which are plenty very of those.
4: Which are very popular in a lot of urban, exurban, suburban places now because you can just it's it's well easy to manage and it's cost effective and it gives people things. The point is that's just one example. We have yeah. all these metropolises, we have all the suburban land, county, not count like I live just past the county line. So I'm in the county, not the city. That's a huge difference in property tax, even though it's only about a 1,000 yards in a straight line. These things are why this gets so complicated. Where do we talk about the local solutions, though? Because, look, we have a national and international audience here. They're all like, well, what do we do about it? Is it a legislative thing? Is it a zoning thing through your councils? Where do we even start with this stuff?
5: I think where you start is you have to be involved in whatever your local board or local committee that makes the zoning decisions for your jurisdiction, your area that you live in, to be actively involved in those. So those, you know, like in my, in my city of Alexandria, we have, you know, um, a zoning board and they will look at zoning changes or approve variances to zoning and so it's part of what I do is I just try to stay abreast of the developments, the applications that are there. It's all on a website. It's all easy to find. The meetings are every, you know, third Wednesday of the month or whatever, you know. Um, and you look at that and, and literally I have a letter that I send to that planning board and to the city council on occasion to support initiatives that, build the types of housing that we need that will allow more people of more varied income levels and more varied skills to live in our city. Because I think that, that makes our city more vibrant.
4: Right. Now you're, and you're a DC area. So let's just be blunt here. Another expensive area, but an area that needs a very young workforce. They need a lot of those recent college grads for a lot of reasons, not just the government jobs, but the support jobs. And you need a lot of labor. You need a lot of non-college education labor for all the supporting areas. That's where this problem gets bad because now, how do you have housing that's hard enough to build in the first place, but you got to get it affordable enough to have the workforce you need to support the city that you're building it in? So your Can workforce that, that in the you, right
5: way? you're so also so the workforce that you need, you know doesn't have to commute two hours to get into your city to, to work there, you know? Um, yeah, and, but see, but that's, that's a local level. The thing is, you know, with a lot of these issues, the voices of no can have a lot more power, right? Because it's the the so-called detrimental effect, if there is one, right? is concentrated amongst a very small sliver of individuals that have a very big um, incentive to yell and scream for the vast majority of the population in the in the jurisdiction it would either have no benefit or slight marginal benefit right so folks don't take the time because it's not worth it to them at an individual level to let the city know hey we want to we know it doesn't really do anything for us but we know it does something for the folks that would be you know serving us coffees in the morning as we go into work <laughs> You know, so they don't write their letters. So the only thing that city council has is a lot of angry people. Um, So think about that. Like it's like that, that. That's a that's a classic problem of where the benefits are and where the costs are. So if the costs are isolated to just a few individuals and the benefits are spread out, even if the benefits are dramatically in the aggregate out, you know, outweigh the costs, it's the people that are benefiting. You know, don't. Don't participate. Don't speak up. Don't make those uh, cases. Right. And that's just our human nature.
4: Yeah. Joining us here. Let me not to interrupt you. Let me interrupt you and ask you this question, though, with that. This is not a new problem. No, the what the wealthy, by and large, wealthy people own homes and own land so you have the wealthier people are always going to want to protect their investment understandably in their land and their property that includes property values that includes what kind of neighborhood it is all that sort of stuff they're the haves the people needing housing are the have-nots but the housing is a problem this is a very 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 old problem
5: it is um you know and we've made we've we've made changes in this country to try to um, allow more people to have housing. We keep. Let's keep in mind, go back a hundred years, housing was, you know, land, right? Was the pro- the property of the very rich. Uh, you were middle class, you did not own your place that you lived. You did not own the land. We were one of the first countries, and maybe not the first, but definitely the first few, to push over, push for this thing called the 30-year mortgage, right? Before that existed, you had to buy a house and have it all paid off within five to ten years, you know, which which was beyond the capacity for pretty much you know the vast 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 majority of American households. So now we get this thirty-year mortgage, backed by the government to to some degree, uh, that becomes an option that does allow for homes to be more affordable to a larger swath of the population. That is why today you have. Uh, probably about, I think it's around probably a 66, 67, 68% home ownership rate, right? So the median U.S. household owns their house, or at least has a mortgage on their house. This is in contrast to a lot of other countries that don't have the 30-year mortgage, and you can find those, and they still have sort of those more antiquated systems, and it's more traditional for, for, for people to rent. Now, those countries where it's more traditional for people to rent, have other vehicles to allow people to build wealth, um, and their housing markets aren't completely as wackadoodle as ours.
4: How do we talk about this? Stephen Popovnik, joining us, economist. How do we talk about this as the problem it is? Because we've talked about it before. The housing crisis is not of the last few years. It's not of the last administration or this administration. This has been going on for a while but it's going to be a huge problem going forward. Here's the thing. We know this is right up your alley. This is what you do for a living. Housing is used for an indicator for a reason because if you build a house, it's not just the house that the family's going to live in. It doesn't matter if it's an apartment or a town home or a multifamily or single family home. It's the same formula. There's something like twenty six trades go into building one house. There's all the materials that go in this. There's the economic, all those, all those trades jobs. Everybody wants to keep getting more and more of. That's an indicator of whether those are doing well or not. Are we building houses? Because you got to have all those trades to build a house. So that's an indicator. And all the things
5: that you go to the department stores or Amazon to buy to fill up
4: said house. Right. So housing such an indicator. Why do we have this cognitive disconnect? Of going, we have a housing issue. There's no way this isn't an economic issue going forward if you don't fix your housing issues as you go along. We just, I know an economist can do that, but in the discourse, we can't seem to put those two things together.
5: Uh, We can't. Again, you know, it is, um, you have folks who like the neighborhoods that they have, who like the places where they live, and they don't like to see them change. And that's human nature, and that's understandable. But when you don't want to see something change, uh, as, an, as an example, we have a development here in Alexandria um, that was primarily for, you know, some of our lower income families. And the owners of that property wanted to expand it, make it a little bit taller, add two more stories to it, essentially. And the, the folks right around where that development was, it's a very nice development, um, pitched a fit saying it would, you know, change their property values, you know, it would alter their views, they'd be more shade, you know, it would, it would be not as good, right? Um, and so it was the, you know, you, you someone who's two miles away doesn't even know about that, you know. But, again, like, that that's the, I think that ultimately is the issue. The, the costs are borne, right, by, by very small silver folks that have a very big incentive to to, to be upset. Um, and I don't even know if they're right to be upset, but but they can be, they are upset, they have reasons for it. I understand those reasons. And then the benefits are spread more diffusely. That, that's all, this is a problem as old as government.
6: join me as we journey together you can listen to church in maine podcast at the website churchandmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app i look forward to seeing you
4: folks you've heard of ethan brown on the hurt tell show a couple of different times but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom head over to his podcast the sweaty penguin Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. They got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find the Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.
2: Yeah,
4: Stephen from are joining us. There's a couple hard and fast formulas in economics. Uh, Things like population growth for economic growth. You gotta have a birth rate or you gotta have an immigration, one or the other or your economy shrinks. That's just a formula. Like there's no getting around that. Sort of there's, technically All right, don't have, get your PhD out. Yeah, it's technical, but
5: generally speaking, yeah, population growth is economic growth.
4: Population yeah. growth is economic growth. We have things like the dollar goes up and down in value, that affects things. That's a formula. Yep. Uh,
5: yeah, that's true.
4: Do we have a basic formula that people can base off of with housing? Because things like unemployment and all that, but Housing seems to be something that's just one thread that goes through just about everything when we start talking about economies. Is there a formula that we can talk about and kind of apply to some of this to get it down to my level that I can understand it from your level, the policymakers who studied this thing and understand it through and through?
5: That's a good question. So what I would say for, for someone like you, what I would focus on
4: is a
5: housing affordability measure. It's just a simple no- number, right? you know, what percentage of people could could afford, you know, the set amount of of house, right? How affordable is housing? And the National Association of Realtors has a number. National Association of Home Builders has a number. I'm certain there's a myriad number of government agencies that have a number too, right? But if I'm looking to understand how the housing market is working, is working, I'm looking at housing affordability, right? So can people afford to buy a house? That's, you know, and of course, that's affected by the size of houses, what goes into them, and also what the interest rates are, right? So we know um, and how many houses there are that are being sold. Like, so we knew that a couple of years ago, right before COVID, we actually were having pretty decent housing affordability numbers. We still had a shortage of housing, but interest rates were so low that housing was more affordable to folks. That's good. We've seen a, a spike up in the lack of housing affordability, so to speak uh, in the last couple of years, thanks to, uh, one continued declines in in inventory, uh, being available. Obviously house prices went up a lot and interest rates went up. Um, and so that just means people are more locked in, right? So, so if I was focused on something, I would just look at, you know, a standard housing affordability, housing affordability metric and see how that's changing over time. And, you know, We could pick a measure to say, you know, we think that the housing market was well-functioning back here at this date, so that's our benchmark. And we're watching us if we're above our benchmark or below our benchmark. That might be the easiest heuristic for for someone to look at.
4: Yeah, Stephen Povnick. Economists extraordinaire talking how, okay, we've been talking about messaging and the economics is a hard thing to message on a good day. It's still hard to message. However, I've been critical of this particular presidential administration, the Biden administration, because I don't think their messaging on the economy has been very good at all. It's been bad, in my opinion. It's not been cohesive whatsoever. The president has come out and said this, and I'm going to quote him here. He's talking about uh, 3.5 trillion. This is a Reuters article. I'll link to it. $3.5 in manufacturing technology over the next decade. We all know how investment over the next decade sound bites work out, but that's neither here nor there. Here's the quote. Quote, this is not about getting to a level spot. This is about going to a whole new plateau. We're the only country in the world who's come out of the crisis stronger than we went in. What the hell is the president talking about?
5: So are you keying off the word plateau there? Here's the thing.
4: I understand on an economic graph that there's plateaus. The problem is, in a post-Jimmy Carter America, nobody in America wants to hear the word plateau and economy at the same time, even if it's in a non-negative sense. Is that fair to say?
5: We want to hear it's always sunrise in America again, to to quote another president, right?
4: Fair, but but this is a comms thing, not a math problem. Do you want to say plateau to an economy that is actually not that bad on paper, but does have some dark spots. But the yeah. perception is that it's a mess, and the messaging is what bridges those two things together. No, no, I'm not sure this is the no. way to go about this.
5: I wouldn't have called this a plateau. I would say that we're climbing back up the ladder again, right? That That is what we're doing. And Biden is correct in the second part. Like, Flip it. We're the only country in the world who's come out of the crisis stronger than we went in. We can argue that. But there are facts supporting that that statement that, that we have come out of the COVID uh, recession in a much better overall position than most countries that are most similar to us, right? And we, you can make the, the very coherent and cogent argument. There are some factors that work against that, but as I said, like you you can make this argument and it's supportable. So I would I would have led personally with the the, the second sentence and just left it at that. Um, you know what he's talking about here is the, the we just had an employment report drop literally this morning about two hours ago, um, and it was a very good employment report. It didn't uh, we weren't uh, we didn't unexpectedly miss expectations. We unexpectedly, unexpectedly. went be, went beyond expectations and had a better uh, job report than what we that we expected than, than than what we might have been thinking about. We also positively saw that wage growth which I know people want wage growth, but wage growth that's sort of been off of its own kilter, uh, adding to inflationary pressures in the economy, we saw wage growth sort of coming back down. And the picture that you can paint from from this is it looks, based on the last couple of months, that we might be getting back to uh, a 3% inflation rate economy, you know, one that's sort of normal Uh one with a normal, well-functioning labor market—you know, getting back up to almost where we are, where we were from the uh, right at the beginning of the of the COVID crisis, you know. So, like, this is a very positive jobs report. Jobs were up in a lot of different industries, and and I said wage growth was starting to come down a bit. Um, so we're starting to see those inflationary pressures tamper out. Could this be the mythical soft landing that the Fed's been trying to engineer? It could be.
4: Now, let's talk about the soft landing. We talked about this before. There's as much danger in coming off of inflation as there is in going up in inflation if it's not handled correctly, though, is there not?
5: So you're talking about, about disinflation or deflation, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, here's the problem with deflation. You want to keep saving there. You want to keep saving because, um, you know, and so, like, that means there won't be as much investment potentially in the economy. So, yeah, there's always dangers, right? I mean, there's a, there's a... There's a reason why a lot of countries in the world, Andrew, have this inflation targeting approach for their central banks, and we don't have that in the US. We don't. Our central bank only ha- has a dual mandate on inflation and employment, but there's not an, like a typical inflation target, right? But but sort of unspoken, there's a general agreement that inflation at about two to three percentage points is kind of the sweet spot. So you sort of want to get back to that. But you know, the, keep in mind that what the Fed's doing, Andrew, is... They're using uh a a lever that takes a lot of time to get moving to pull it down or pull it up and a lot of time to stop the motion. So they're they're trying to predict where we're gonna be six months, nine months from now and where they're making their decisions, you know. So that's the danger, right? If they misread the situation, they keep the they keep the lever moving up a little bit too long or moving down too long, then we overshoot or undershoot and we don't we don't hit what we want to be.
4: Popnik. Okay. The big question everybody's concerned on, same question as last year, new year, same problems, right? You've heard this once or twice in your life as an economist. SSDD. Are are we going to have a R word? Is there going to be a recession in
5: 2023? Okay. So I hate this word.
4: I know. And I'm going to give my
5: usual diatribe here. I know. We could have a recession with negative 1.1% GDP growth we would not have a recession with 0.1% GDP growth. It's literally the same economy, right? So we shouldn't be keying, I I, I get why we key on it, it's an easy metric, but I, I think, you know, an economic slowdown has costs just like an economic recession has costs. There are different degrees of it, you know? So we shouldn't think about it as like, could we, if we avoid the recession, Woo! Play the trumpets. That's great. But if we avoid the recession by barely avoiding it, there's still issues. So, could we have a recession? Yes, absolutely. Could it be mild? Yes, absolutely. We've had recessions in the past that I think the average American was not even aware we had a recession. Right? Uh, I'm thinking of like 1998 or around that time. We had a we had a mini recession. It was kind of a blip. I don't think most people are registered on the at the, at the household level. Um. You know, but we could, you know, certainly, you know, have a, a, uh, you know, a deeper one. But I think that's relatively unlikely. Right now, the data sure is showing that if we're going to have a recession, it's going to be quick and mild. Of course, we're we're assuming that everything else right now holds, current trends hold, nothing else goes crazy, COVID 3.0 doesn't take off, Russia doesn't invade yet another country, all those other things that can happen in the world. An asteroid doesn't hit. Who knows?
4: There is one of those things, though, that is happening right now that has changed things Last, China is reopening. That is going to change things in the global economy and for the U.S. economy as China reopens from their COVID lockdown.
5: Yes. Yeah. So that that is a for the global economy. That's a positive thing. Right. That means, uh, means that for example, maybe my maybe my uh, my uh, component for my sleep number bed that's malfunctioning actually comes over on a ship.
4: Um, this is a very first world of first world problems, there, Captain Privilege. But point noted.
5: I just, you know, personal example of how the supply chain crises are still going on, are still affecting people. Um, but yes, that would that would have a benefit that would help accelerate economic growth across the world uh, with China reopening, because those goods would be more easily, you know, flowing out of China and their production would be would be occurring. So yeah. it's it's definitely better to have the. Better for the economy to be reopening. Don't know if it's better for health. Uh, we'll see if they have to shut down again because their COVID policies and their uh, COVID vaccine uh do not seem to be particularly effective.
4: Yeah, just one of those great unknowns that make economics so interesting and sexy and fun, right? Stephen Popovnik, our economist friend. I I appreciate yeah, I appreciate that. (laughs) See, I want to do that when we talk to you though, like talk about those basic building blocks. So when some see China's a big thing. But if we don't talk about those building blocks and we don't talk about the state of the economy, then you can't really talk about how China does or does not affect it. It all goes together. And that's why we keep having you on to explain this as we go along. Appreciate your time. Let folks know where they can follow you, what you have going on and how they can keep up with you until the next economic headline that we have to get you to come in and explain it to us. Uh,
5: At some point, I'll start writing for uh, Ordinary Times again. Uh, It's one of my New Year's resolutions. We'll see how long I keep it. Like most Americans, I'll probably fail at some point. Sorry, Andrew, in advance. Uh, I, do it. I'm also, you know, always, you know, watching what's happening on Twitter. As long as Twitter still exists, you can find me at Modo Economist on Twitter, where I do share uh, from time to time takes on housing and sort of how the, the U.S. market is going.
4: Uh, Stephen Popnik, always appreciate your time, my friend. You explained this well so that even I can understand it. And you usually give me stuff to go look up and read on, which I will now go and do. So I try to keep up with you better next time. Thanks for the time, sir. Happy to do it, man. You too, sir. All the music on tell is provided under a creative content license
0: from Monstercat.com.
6: Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor... I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church in Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church and Maine podcast at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.
4: Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. They got over a hundred episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics. From the vanilla, to the ADHD, to the international accountability, to orangutan. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.